You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends, to episode 199 of The Corbett Report podcast, 35 Reasons to Question 9-11. I am James Corbett, and it is the 11th of September 2011, 10 years on from 9-11-2001. And we will be dispensing with all of the usual formalities today, because today we will have a documentary episode that, as you can see, clocks in at just shy of three hours. It's the longest episode I've ever put together, and it is going to be a documentary episode where I just take various clips and put them together without comment, as I have done several times on this podcast in the past. And as always, I certainly hope that you will use this as an opportunity to spread this information out to other people who may or may not be really familiar with some of the information contained herein, which I think is extremely important for people who are just really discovering about 9-11 and 9-11 truth. So please use this as a tool. And if you have received a link to this file and are listening to this podcast for the first time, please know that all of the clips that you hear today are sourced and it is documented in the documentation list for today's episode, which you can find on CorbettReport.com by clicking on the Episodes tab and then finding today's episode number 199. And clicking on that, you'll find a documentation list with all of the uh, links to all of the clips used in today's episode sorted by time index. So when you hear something interesting that you don't understand the context of or you want to know more about, please go and look that up and you'll find the link and you can go and watch it directly in its entirety. And for everyone who's, uh, who's wondering about the 35, well, it's a completely arbitrary number. It could have easily been 50 or 91 or 100 or whatever number, but I just physically ran out of time. And as I want to get this out on 9-11-2011, at least uh, 9-11 back in North America, I am putting it out now and stopping at 35. And uh, please don't take this as a complete list of everything there is to know about 9-11. It certainly, obviously cannot be. It's just a list to which you are free to supplement as you will. So let's get straight into it. Episode 199, 35 Reasons to Question 9-11. As we continue on Hannity and Combs on September 11, 2001, as terrorists took control of our four commercial airplanes, it was chaos, it was confusion at NORAD's Northeast Air Defense Headquarters. Now, journalist Michael Bronner has now obtained 30 hours of NORAD audio transmissions from 9-11, and in this month's Vanity Fair, he documents just how chaotic and uncoordinated the government's response was. Listen up. We have a problem here. We have a hijacked aircraft headed towards New York, and we need you guys to, we need someone to scramble some F-16s or something up there to help us out. Is this, is this real world or exercise? No, this is not an exercise, man. Okay. Is he inbound to JFK? We don't know. You don't know where he is at all? He's being hijacked. The pilot's having a hard time talking to the... I mean, we don't know. We don't know where he's going. I don't know where I'm scrambling these guys to. I need a direction, a destination. Okay, okay I'm going to give you the Z point. It's just north of uh, New York City. A plane to sit there on the trade center. What? No, sir. What? Like a world trade center. Who are you talking to? Oh, my God. Oh, God. Yes, ma'am, did you just hear the information regarding the World Trade Center? No. Being hit by an aircraft? I'm sorry? Being hit by an aircraft. It's on the world news. They have a second possible hijack. Is this explosion part of it that we're looking at now on TV? Boston yes. is now grounding. Oh, the second hijack. Okay. 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 
Fair.com. Based on the tapes, Bronner found that much of the government's testimony to the 9-11 Commission about the air defense response on 9-11 was incorrect or he claims misleading. Michael Bronner joins us now. It's, it's hard to hear that. It is hard. It's very confusing. Would, would the government ever be ready for something like that, do you think? I mean, or is it one of those things that is so unpredictable that that seems almost the natural response? Well, I think that when you listen to the tapes and you hear how the troops are responding on the operations floor. I think that they're reacting in, in real time, yeah. making quick decisions. It's um, the breakdown between the FAA and the, and the military and trying to figure out where these planes were caused them the biggest problems all day. We heard that segment about the transponder being turned off, so that was so they couldn't locate the plane. Right, that was the biggest problem all day. The hijackers flipped off a switch, and which in is in the cockpit, which turns off a beacon, which sends a signal to the uh, civilian controllers telling the name of the plane and... In its location, and once they did that, they made the military completely dependent on the FAA to try to tell them where these planes were, and they were simply speaking different so languages. So, in, in an evil sense, that was a if they wanted to accomplish the sick goal of theirs, that was important. At one point in the tapes, you hear the mission crew commander, Major Nisipani, say, "Wow, these guys are smart. They knew exactly what they wanted to do." Michael, you yeah. say the uh, Pentagon deliberately misled the 9/11 Commission and the American public. How so? Well, I don't, I don't say that specifically. I say that basically what I tried to do in this piece is, first of all, digest the material. Second of all, put it you know, in, in context within the timeline, make this, this room come alive. You misled, correct? Well, the 9-11 Commission members that I talked to certainly believe that they were misled and were extremely angry. Misled specifically about, for example, whether or not there was command to shoot down United 93? Well, the, the military and, and members of the administration imply after the attack for months and, and even years that they were watching United 93 for a long time, that they were debating. They made the tough decision to shoot it down. But as we learn in the tapes, the military didn't know about United 93 until four minutes after so it So the crashed. administration purposely lied to the American people and the 9-11 Commission about the timeline. Why? Well, I, I don't say that specifically the... The 9-11 Commission members that I spoke to feel strongly well, the that the timeline shown the in these tapes would bear that out, wouldn't it? It would seem so. And what would be the motivation not to share with the American public with the 9-11 Commission the truth of what was happening? Well, we know from the tapes that the, um, the civilian controller who first hears that there are problems on United 93, he actually heard the struggle in the cockpit and made valiant efforts to try to get other planes to help him to right. see where that plane was. He passed that information up the chain. Somehow, no one in the FAA Michael, chain you, you told, no, the, told the military until... We, we got to run. You have no direct evidence that anybody purposely lied. 
That's what the Department of Transportation and the Department of Defense and Inspector Generals are looking into. But there's no evidence or proof as well. there's clear evidence that the timeline that the military right, presented yeah, at the first hearing is, is wrong. That doesn't mean something. No, lies. that's why the uh, okay. investigations are happening. Appreciate it. Thanks for being with us. This film contains a short summary of the publicly available but still widely unnoticed evidence for a supposed attempt to obstruct the air defense on 9-11-2001. Thesis. The commander of the northeast sector of the U.S. air defense, NIAS, tried successfully at least five times to obstruct or slow down the military response to the hijackings on 9-11. We start with the acting persons. The chain of command on 9-11 looked like this. George W. Bush, Donald Rumsfeld, General Ralph Eberhardt, Major General Larry Arnold, Colonel Robert Marr, Major Kevin Mizipani. Interestingly, the top of this chain of command was empty on 9-11. President Bush spent the morning in Florida and stayed out of the loop in terms of military orders. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld abandoned his post and was not available for his air defense subordinates during the attack. The real management of the air defense on the morning of 9-11 was actually in the hands of two men, even further down in the chain of command. Major Kevin Nazipani, mission crew commander at Nietz, and his direct superior, Colonel Robert Moore, commander of Nietz. The decisions of these two men had great effect on 9-11. It wasn't their direct responsibility to intercept the hijacked airliners with fighter jets. Unfortunately, one of them, the higher-ranking officer on the left, supposedly tried at least five times to obstruct this process. Here are the facts. Obstruction number one. Two fighter pilots at Otis Air Force Base, 300 kilometers northeast of New York, were alarmed and set in their jets ready to start their engines at around 8.42, even before any hijacked plane had hit the World Trade Center towers. But then they had to wait. Colonel Marr, who could have ordered them to take off immediately, chose not to do that. He made an unnecessary phone call with his boss, General Arnold, instead. In effect, the order to take off was delayed for crucial three to four minutes. Without that delay, the pilots could possibly have intercepted their second hijacked plane, which crashed at 9.03. Obstruction number two. At 9.09, after both of the towers were hit, Major Nisipani wanted to launch a second pair of fighters from Langley Air Force Base, 200 kilometers southeast of Washington, to place a barrier near the capital, a wise request. But Colonel Marr, his superior, refused this. In the end, the order to scramble the Langley jets was given no sooner than 924. 
15 important minutes were lost. Had Ma ordered the scramble at 9.09 as requested, the jets could have reached the Pentagon before it was attacked at 9.37. Obstruction number three. Captain Craig Borgstrom was the supervisor of flying at Langley Air Force Base. He was responsible for coordinating the Langley pilots during a mission, giving them orders from the ground and maintaining the flow of information. Shortly before 9.24, he got a phone call from Neat's leadership, meaning Colonel Moore, ordering him to leave his coordination post on the ground and to take off as a third pilot. This was highly unusual, as an alert mission is always consisting of two fighters. The order brought actually no advantages for the air defense, but a major drawback. No officer was left on the ground to keep in touch with the Langley pilots. So when they were finally sent also in the wrong and unintended direction, not for Washington, but straight out to the east over the ocean, a scandal that remains even ten years later still unexplained, by the way. Nobody could reach them and tell them to turn around to save the Pentagon. With Boxstrom on the ground, this would have been no problem. Marr decided otherwise. Obstruction number four. When Vice President Cheney ordered his shoot-down order, it was again Colonel Marr who decided not to convey this order to the pilots. In 2002, he also lied about this in a TV interview and offered no further explanation. That means, even if any fighter pilot had reached one hijacked airliner after this order had been given, he wouldn't have known that he had actually clearance to shoot. Colonel Moore had prevented it. Obstruction number five. When the commander of Syracuse Air Base called Major Nisipani to offer fighter jets, he stated that his pilots could be airborne within 15 minutes with hot guns. Nisipani appreciated the offer. Hot guns? Well, that's good enough for me. And gave the Syracuse commander the phone number of his superior, Colonel Marr, if you want to talk to him. Syracuse did this and repeated the offer to Marr. Airborne with hot guns in 15 minutes? With heat-seeking missiles in 30 minutes, or with slammers, missiles with active radar, in an hour, because it would take some time to put these missiles on board. March shows the unnecessary. I want it all. So he delayed the start of the fighter jets again, as he had done it with the Otis pilots and then with the Langley pilots, as he had ordered Boxstrom away from his coordination post, and as he had prevented the transfer of the shoot-down order to the pilots. Five obstructions and one man responsible. To clarify, with all these facts now available, it's of course still not proven that Colonel Ma made all these decisions in order to intentionally weaken the air defense. This is only a thesis so far, it could be false. But one thing is also clear. To get to the bottom of this, it needs a new public investigation of 
Tom, thanks very much. We'll talk to you a little bit. On now to one of the eeriest moments amid the carnage of 9-11. A mysterious plane was seen flying right over the president's residence. Even some CNN staffers saw it. To this day, it has never been officially explained. Tonight, Chief National Correspondent John King has new details about this great 9-11 mystery. Today, six years after 9-11, the mystery endures about just what happened in the skies over the White House that terrible day. A plane flew right over it. But why? And what was it? For conspiracy theorists, the image is a gold mine. Go back to that morning. Suddenly, an orderly evacuation of the White House turned hectic. In New York, the Twin Towers had collapsed. There was word of an explosion at the Pentagon. And then, Secret Service warnings of another plane still on course for Washington. It appeared overhead just before 10 a.m., a four-engine jet banking slowly in the nation's most off-limits airspace on the White House grounds and the rooftop, a nervous scramble. About 10 minutes ago, there was a white jet circling overhead. Now, you generally don't see planes in the area over the White House. That is restricted airspace. No reason to believe that this jet was there for any nefarious purposes, but the Secret Service was very concerned, pointing up at the jet in the sky. And still today, no one will offer an official explanation of what we saw. Two government sources familiar with the incident tell CNN it was a military aircraft. They say the details are classified. This comparison of the CNN video and an official Air Force photo suggests the mystery plane is among the military's most sensitive aircraft, an Air Force E-4B. Note the flag on the tail, the stripe around the fuselage, and the telltale bubble just behind the 747 cockpit area. There are many commercial uh, versions of the 747, obviously, that look similar, but I don't know any of them that have the communications pod like the E-4, uh, the Air Force E-4 does behind the cockpit. The E-4B is a state-of-the-art flying command post, built and equipped for one reason, to keep the government running no matter what, even in the event of a nuclear war, the reason it was nicknamed the Doomsday Plane during the Cold War. They exercise uh, this type of thing all of the time, and they simply don't talk about it. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me that they, uh, that they are very closed-mouthed about it. Ask the Pentagon, and it insists this is not a military aircraft. And there is no mention of it in the official report of the 9-11 Commission. Commission Co-Chairman Lee Hamilton says he has a vague recollection of someone mentioning a mystery plane. But staffers who looked into it never raised it as a relevant issue. When you're conducting a major investigation, you get thousands of things that come at you. You can't possibly sort through them all. This never rose to the level of a discussion within the commission. To some, the lack of any official explanation feeds an ominous conspiracy. This is from an online discussion about the plane on the website 911blogger.com. I have always thought these planes were exactly that, mission control for the 9-11 attack on our country. 9-11 Commission co-chairman Hamilton calls such talk ludicrous. We, of course, heard the conspiracy theories about uh, the president ordered the attack and the Defense Department was involved. We saw absolutely no evidence of that. But six years later, the Pentagon, the Secret Service, and the FAA all say they, at least for public consumption, have no explanation of the giant plane over the president's house just as the smoke began to rise across the river at the Pentagon. John King, CNN. Washington. Most people don't realize that on September 11th, planes were known to be hijacked and flying around the eastern United States for over 70 minutes. After September 11th, many wondered why the United States Air Force was unable to stop the hijacked aircraft, especially American Airlines Flight 77, which struck the Pentagon. 
American Airlines Flight 11 was hijacked at 8.14 a.m. By 8.25, Boston air traffic controllers confirmed that the flight was indeed hijacked and the aircraft struck the North Tower of the World Trade Center at 8.46. At 9.03, United Airlines Flight 175 struck the South Tower, and at that time, the whole world knew that America was under attack. It was not until 9.37 that American Airlines Flight 77 hit the Pentagon. Therefore, it was a full hour and ten minutes between the times the FAA knew that Flight 11 was hijacked and the time that Flight 77 hit the Pentagon. How could this happen? The area around the Pentagon and Washington, D.C. is some of the most heavily defended airspace in the world. This fact led many to believe there had to be a stand-down order issued, which would have prevented standard operating procedures from allowing these aircraft to be intercepted or possibly shot down. A stand-down is defined as, quote, a relaxation from a state of readiness or alert, unquote. This certainly took place regarding air defenses on September 11th. One explanation offered was that the terrorists turned off the electronic device known as a transponder, which helps identify aircraft on radar. As stated by the 9-11 Commission, it is possible, though more difficult, to track an aircraft by its primary radar returns without the transponder. However, unlike transponder data, primary radar returns do not show the aircraft's identity and altitude. The 9-11 Commission failed to consider the fact that the U.S. military has more than just ground radar at their disposal. In 2006, a golf ball was hit off the International Space Station. New Scientist magazine reported that the ball was too small to be tracked by ground radar, but noted that, quote, U.S. military can track space debris as small as 10 centimeters across and can sometimes see things as small as 5 centimeters wide if it is in just the right orbit, unquote. There are 35 United States Air Force bases within range of the 9-11 flights, which included the restricted airspace surrounding the Pentagon, Capitol Hill, and the White House. It is hard to believe that a military which possesses such a highly sophisticated radar system would not have been able to track the hijacked aircraft without a transponder signal. Commercial airliners do not need their transponders turned on in order to be tracked by the U.S. military. If America is being attacked by aircraft belonging to a foreign power, it is ridiculous to think that these enemy aircraft would have transponders installed to help the U.S. Air Force shoot them down. It is equally ridiculous to believe that the U.S. military lacks the technology to track aircraft without a transponder signal. For more information and to read a transcript of this 9-11 red flag and to hear other red flags like this one, visit visibility911.com slash red flags. Uh, be careful what we say on a loop because these are being recorded and these tapes will be handed over. Everybody copy that? Uh, copy. Um... Even bin Laden himself warned us three weeks earlier. Osama bin Laden warned three weeks ago that he would attack American interests in an unprecedented attack, a very big one. There was a report, you'll recall, that the Mossad, the Israeli intelligence agency, did indeed send representatives to the U.S. to warn, just before 9-11, that a major terrorist sure, sure. attack was imminent. Prior to 9-11, it was widely reported that hijacked planes could be used as weapons. Uh, by Yusef's group, and uh, Bin Laden's group 
to undertake a uh, suicide mission. Morevda narrated to us about uh, a plan by the Ramsey cell in the continental U.S. to hijack a commercial plane and ram it to the CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, and uh, also the Pentagon. And they found more evidence pointing to other targets, evidence the Philippine government says it passed on to the U.S. The targets they listed were CIA headquarters, Pentagon, Transamerica, Sears, and the World Trade Center. President Bush even received the Phoenix Memo, stating bin Laden was determined to strike in the U.S. in August, right before the attacks. The president was aware that bin Laden, of course, is previous administrations has been well known um, that bin Laden was determined to strike the United States. In fact, the, um, the label on the president's, uh, the PDB, was bin Laden determined to strike the United States. On August 6, 2001, President Bush was presented a President's Daily Brief article titled, Bin Laden Determined to Strike in U.S., the lead sentence of that president's daily brief indicated that bin Laden and his followers wanted to follow the example of World Trade Center bomber Ramzi Youssef and bring the fighting to America. The article cited a more sensational threat reporting that bin Laden wanted to hijack a U.S. aircraft. The president's daily brief item included information from the FBI indicating patterns of suspicious activity in this country consistent with preparations for hijackings. The president broke his silence today about the revelations earlier this week that he had been briefed before September 11th about a possible al-Qaeda hijacking plot. The comments took place in the White House South Lawn setting where the press could not ask questions. While he was honoring the Air Force football team, his comments diverted to what has become topic A in Washington. You know what's interesting about Washington? It's a town, unfortunately, it's the kind of place where second-guessing has become second nature. What I want to say to my, uh, my Democratic friends in the Congress is that they need to be very cautious not to seek political advantage by making incendiary suggestions, as were made by some today, that the White House had advanced information that would have prevented the tragic attacks of 9-11. Clark confirms that in June, July, and August 2001, the Central Intelligence Agency warned the president in daily briefings of unprecedented indications that a major al-Qaeda attack was going to happen against the United States. Try as he did, an alert and smart FBI agent couldn't get much attention last summer when he tried to alert his bosses about something suspicious he noticed before September 11th. He's getting plenty of attention now, and everyone wants to hear what he has to say, including Congress. CBS's Jim Stewart reports tonight on the man and the memo. 
FBI agent Kenneth Williams, the man behind the memo that's put the Bureau in such hot water, was paraded before the Senate today, where he tried to explain that even if his suggestion to interview Middle Eastern students at U.S. flight schools had been taken, it probably wouldn't have stopped September the 11th. What the senators wanted to hear, however, was why his suggestion wasn't acted on in the first place. And, and even to this day, uh, no one seems to know who knew what, why, or where uh, these critical uh, information went at FBI headquarters. Officials familiar with the memo now say it was prompted by Williams' hunch that followers of Osama bin Laden might be trying to infiltrate the aviation industry as either baggage handlers, flight attendants, or even as pilots. Then on July 10th, Williams and an analyst sent a five-page summary to FBI headquarters that listed the names of ten Middle Eastern students in Phoenix and suggested the FBI check all other flight schools for similar students. A week later, the FBI provided the ten names to the CIA, which replied it had no information on them. But citing manpower problems, the Bureau never did check out other flight schools. And it wasn't until days after the 9-11 attacks when Phoenix-based agents complained to headquarters that the memo finally made it into the hands of Assistant FBI Director Dale Watson, who quickly recognized its significance. We are like a soccer goalkeeper. We can block 99 shots. And the only thing anyone will ever remember is the one that gets through. The bottom line, officials admit, is that no one knows for sure what would have happened if the Bureau had aggressively followed up on all the Phoenix memo suggestions. One certainty, however, is that if they had, they wouldn't be answering all these questions now. Jim Stewart, CBS News, Washington. follow Almadar al-Hazmi and, and Benatash uh, out of the meeting. And then they lose them in, in Bangkok. Bangkok. And it's not as I originally saw, which was that one lowly CIA analyst got this information and didn't somehow recognize the significance of it. No, 50-5-0 CIA personnel knew about this. You understand the way they update us at the White House is every morning I come in, I turn on my computer, and I get 100, 150 CIA reports. I'm not relying on somebody calling me and telling me things. You have to intentionally stop it. You have to intervene and say, no, I don't want that report to go. And I never got a report to that effect. If there was a decision made to stop normal distribution with regard to this, this case, then people like Tom Wilshire would have known that. Tom Wilshire, uh, as well as uh, Desk Officer Michelle, accessed the cable mentioning the UBL Associates coming to the, uh, to the United States, the March cable. Uh, and they also accessed the original Malaysian cable about the visa multiple times. On these subsequent times, if he shook something loose, he had full range of opportunity to alert you. He did, but he wouldn't have to. Because unless somebody intervened to stop the normal automatic distribution, mm -hmm. I would automatically get it. For me, to this day, it is inexplicable why 
when I had every other detail about everything related to terrorism that the director didn't tell me, that the director of the counterterrorism center didn't tell me, that the other 48 people in CIA who knew about it never mentioned it to me or anyone in my staff in a period of over 12 months. They were stopped from getting to you and stopped from getting to the White House then. Yeah. And stopped from getting to the FBI and the Defense Department. We therefore conclude that there was a high-level decision in the CIA ordering people not to share that information. How high-level? I think it would have to be made by the director. you got to understand, my relationship with him, we were close friends. He called me several times a day. We shared the most trivial of information with each other. There was not a lack of information sharing. They told us everything except this. Dr. Jeff Kay is a San Francisco Bay Area psychologist who has been writing for truthout.org for several years now. And together with uh, my colleague and friend Jason Leopold, he has recently broken a series of stories based on intelligence from a gentleman who is known as Iron Man. Dr. Jeff Kay, welcome back to our program. Hi, great to be here, Peter. Tell me a little bit about Iron Man, and uh, does the name derive from a fascination with the heavy metal band Black Sabbath? Not to my knowledge. He was, he was uh, an intelligence professional who worked for the Naval Criminal Investigative Service some years ago, who later uh, went to work for an, an, an agency most Americans haven't heard of, the Joint Forces Intelligence Command. It's a military intelligence uh, uh, component attached to... Uh, one of the major U.S. military commands, uh, U.S. military is divided into different commands worldwide. Uh, the one JFIC is attached to is called Joint Forces, or United States Joint Forces Command. Mm-hmm. And uh, he got the name Iron Man. Uh, was a, it was the term given to him by the Inspector General, the Department of Defense's Inspector General Department, when they released a report uh, of their own investigation on his allegations a few years ago. Uh-huh. And uh, before we get to the meat of the story, and there are some very important uh, developments that you've reported here, uh, how did you make contact with Iron Man and uh, uh, this very significant information? Well, I wrote a story uh, for Truth Out uh, last month in May Mm -hmm. uh, because I came across this Inspector General report uh, while uh, trolling the Internet, I guess you could say, looking for actually information on torture um, in government uh, documents related to it, which is more of what I usually have written about. In right. And I stumbled upon this, and it was uh, small enough, uh, only 30 pages or so, and the uh, title of it uh, intrigued me. So I, I took a look at it. The, the report's name, uh, actually uh, Stephen Aftergood over at Federation of American Scientists had requested it by Freedom of Information Act, and it was called Review of Joint Forces Intelligence Command Response to 9-11 Commission. I said, well, let's take a look at that. And in it, I discovered this story, uh, which I then wrote up a truth out about how um, uh, even, even uh, although this uh, uh, report was to essentially re- uh, dismiss the uh, various allegations that the Iron Man uh, uh, had complained about, 
uh, they did admit in the in their report that his organization um, had been tracking Osama bin Laden in 1999 2000 uh, and uh, that the commander had come to them one day and told them to stop doing it and uh, I thought that was a very interesting story given that in the Previous weeks, we had been, you know, listening to and witness to all of the news around the uh, tracking and uh, killing of Osama bin Laden. Mm-hmm. Here was a piece of uh, of that history that has never been discussed before. Since August of 1999, I've been working to legally expose the very real and foreseeable Middle Eastern terrorist threats to American citizens at home and abroad. From 1993 to 1999, I was assigned to the Chicago Division's Counterterrorism Task Force. In this capacity, I became familiar with the techniques used by international terrorist organizations to surreptitiously move money, launder money in and out of the United States, including through the use of domestic financial institutions in support of terrorist and paramilitary activities and operations in the United States and abroad, including the state of Israel and elsewhere. Against the wishes of some at the FBI in 1995, when I uncovered criminal violations of several of my cases, I promptly initiated active terrorism criminal investigations on these subjects. I developed probable cause to believe that some of these transfers or transmissions have been of money intended to be used in the support of domestic and international terrorism activities. The illegal transfers have supported specific terrorist activities involving the extortion, kidnapping, and murder of at least one Israeli citizen. The successful investigation, which was codenamed Vulgar Betrayal, V-U-L-G-A-R, Betrayal, led to the June 1998 seizure of $1.4 million of Middle Eastern terrorist funding. The seizure was the first occasion that the United States government utilized the civil forfeiture laws to seize assets in the United States. These funds were linked directly to Saudi businessman Yassine Qadi. On October 12, 2001, approximately one month after the attack, Yassine Qadi was designated by the United States government as a financial supporter of Osama bin Laden. Despite the unqualified success of the investigation of the Middle Eastern terrorists, FBI management failed to take seriously the threat of terrorism in the United States. Specifically, FBI management intentionally and repeatedly thwarted and obstructed my attempts to launch a more comprehensive investigation to identify and to neutralize terrorists. The FBI's lack of support for the Volcker betrayal investigation was obvious to my new supervisor in 1998, who after only four months of being on the squad wrote, quote, Agent Wright has spearheaded this effort despite an embarrassing lack of investigative resources available to the case, such as computers, financial analysis software, and a team of financial analysts. Although far from being concluded, the success of this investigation so far has been entirely due to the foresight and perseverance of Agent Wright. Close quote. Although the Volcker Betrayal investigation had been proposed for designation as a major FBI case because of its far-reaching scope in 1999 in an effort to further the terrorism investigation. I had to purchase much-needed software, computer software, and a scanner with my own funds since I was unable to obtain the necessary funding from the FBI. 
I sought to communicate my experiences, as Larry had said and David said, to Congress and others in the public interest following the September 11th attacks. However, a threat was leveled by a Department of Justice official against me through my attorneys to prevent me from meeting with members of Congress during the week following September 11th. This came from the Attorney General's office. In fact, the following morning, in order to prevent me from traveling from Washington, D.C., or to Washington, D.C., from Chicago, on my own time, I was told by the FBI division that I could not travel outside of Chicago without permission from the FBI. My efforts have always been geared towards neutralizing the terrorist threats focused on taking the lives of American citizens, in addition to harming the national and economic security of America. However, as a direct result of the incompetency and, at times, intentional obstruction of justice by FBI management to prevent me from bringing the terrorists to justice, Americans have unknowingly been exposed to potential terrorist attacks for years. At the end of the day, when I was finished with the certain parts of the investigation, it was clear to me that there's no way PTAC could have done all of this without a lot of inside help. And that's what I began focusing on, that it was a cutout, that it was a front. Was it a regular CIA front? Was it a clandestine front? What was it? You know, there are walls within the FBI, walls within the CIA, behind which these operations take place. And who is behind those operations, you know, is a key question. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Indira Singh. Indira Singh worked on Wall Street from 1975 until June 2002 when she was summarily terminated due to her investigation into computer software company, P-Tech. On 9-11, Indira Singh was working as a senior consultant for J.P. Morgan Chase. She was tasked with developing a next-generation operational risk blueprint which would proactively identify exposures, including money laundering, rogue trading, and illicit financing patterns. It was in this capacity nine months later that she sought to subcontract with software engineer P-Tech to design a next-generation risk blueprint for J.P. Morgan Chase. Today's show... Ground Zero 9-11, Blueprint for Terror, Part 2. In Part 1, she described her work as an emergency medical technician at Ground Zero and began to describe her professional work for J.P. Morgan Chase and her first client meeting with software engineer P-Tech. So, Indira, how did your meeting with P-Tech, how did that go? Well, they came a little late. Immediately, there were some issues with how the day would proceed. For instance, they showed up without the agreed on software in hand. The most important thing about it is that their chief scientist, Dr. Hussein Ibrahim, came. He's an Egyptian-American, and he had a, a very good reputation in the field, very bright, someone you would like working with, very knowledgeable. But they had showed up without the software, and what I had done was isolated a workstation to get off the net. After all, we were testing uh, whether the software would meet our criteria, and if I had said it did, then uh, that would be a big deal if it subsequently couldn't. So I needed to start with an out-the-box version of PTEC. They didn't bring that, and Dr. Abraham said, that's not a problem, we can develop the demo on his laptop. And if you know anything about these things, that's like a 
no, no, because at the end of the day, he's walking out the door and I don't have anything. And he's walking away with pretty much enough of how we're thinking about doing operational risk. Now, operational risk is about how to spot bad things that are going on in a financial institution, things like rogue trading, money laundering, and so on and so forth. And it's very subtle. Our intellectual property, at least what J.P. Morgan was hiring me for, was to think innovatively out of the box in the next generation how do you proactively design a blueprint to spot these things? And that's pretty big. He's definitely, people are smart enough to get an idea. Oh, they're thinking of going down this road. That's a big deal. So I was a risk person, so I'm very aware of not to expose our intellectual property or that of the company I am consulting for. I'm very protective of that. So they showed up without the software and um, that was a huge enough red flag that I began paying attention to them. A couple other things went on and within half an hour I just walked over to the same people who had recommended them and began calling and I said to one of them I have the PTAC people here and the reaction was not the reaction I would have ever expected. It was what are they doing on site and I said well you recommended them and they said no um, you should have come through a distributor, an American distributor. And I said, uh-uh, J.P. Morgan reserves a right to work directly with the company. And besides which, they are a preferred vendor of IBM, their preferred vendor program. And that's the way we work. We don't work through small distributors. If we're going to go with this software as a standard, we're going to go right to the source and make the agreements there. So I said, what is the problem? And uh, basically, this person said, don't let them out of your sight. And that's when my stomach sank. So you have to understand how all of a sudden I'm beginning to see these people in a different way. Because when they said, don't let them out of your sight, I have a Middle Eastern company there. And we're taught not to discriminate. And that was not something that I was about to do. And uh, to prove that they were there being evaluated. So that is never uh, you know, going to be a bone of contention. Although later people made that an issue. But if I had a problem working with a Middle Eastern company, they would have never been there in the first place, much less before Ground Zero closed. And no problem whatsoever having them up there. I like the idea. What do you mean uh, P-TECH was a Middle Eastern company? Well, that's what subsequently was revealed in the phone call, that their financier, their funders, their investors were all Saudis. And I said, so what? Um, and they said, one Saudi has been placed on the U.S. terror list October 12, 2001. And I said, um, it got very quiet. I said, you better have proof of that because having thrown that into my lap now, this is not something that I can ignore. I have to follow up on it. This is not something I can ignore or pretend would go away or have someone else handle. This is risk management, the highest levels of one of the largest banks in the world. It is my responsibility to deal with this. And I said, how can I get proof of this? And that's when they started saying, you need to talk to Jeff Goins, who was one of the only three people in PTEC who knew of this relationship. You see, it was that well hidden within PTEC. And so I subsequently called Jeff Goins and I said, well, if this is true, did you not report this? PTEC is a private company, so this relationship would have been privy only to those on the inside. I said, did you report it anywhere that someone who has been placed on the U.S. terror list is 
key funder, angel investor, to a company whose software is utilized at the highest levels of almost every government and military and defense organization in this country, including the Secret Service, the FBI, the Department of Defense, the House of Representatives, the Treasury Department, the IRS, the U.S. Navy, the U.S. Air Force, and last but not least, the Federal Aviation Administration. Are you saying these were all P-TECH clients? These were all P-TECH clients, and when I was evaluating them, I was pretty impressed. Why not P-TECH? Exactly. They're being used at the highest levels of all of these organizations. So I was very excited about using them and having their software be able to be at the heart of what I wanted to develop. And I had no reason to believe that if they were in use everywhere at that caliber, that I would have a problem. They're also used in Enron, perhaps I should have thought twice about that, but um, they're at use in IBM, of course, and the top accounting firms, and even in the FBI, in MITRE. What is MITRE? MITRE is a large company that does specialized technology for defense and intelligence. You would not expect to have an exposure with a company that was so well entrenched and embedded in these kinds of organizations. So what about the meeting? Then did they leave? Just what no, happened? Because um, basically my position was until I had proof, I could not react. That would have been very unprofessional of me. And so I thought of a number of scenarios that could be going on at that point. I thought it might have been, you know, competitiveness, out of control, distributors wanting the J.P. Morgan account. It could have been anything. And however, the one thing that was true is that the chief investor, uh, Sheikh Yassin Qadi, was indeed placed on the U.S. terror list because while I was talking to them, while they were still there, I checked out a website that had a list of everyone who had been placed on the terror list. The missing piece was, of course, proving that Sheikh Yassin Qadi was indeed affiliated with P-TECH, was an owner of P-TECH because it was a private company. You could say that anybody was an investor, any bad guy or good guy was an investor. Proving it was another thing. So I let everything ride, but I kept an eye on things. And in fact, we did have a presentation that went very, very well because in no way, shape or form was I going to jeopardize that. So what happened next? Did you go on working with them or did you start to investigate PTEC? Well, I continued multitasking. I was working with them. I placed a few phone calls and people got back to me later that day while they were still on premises. So I was able to separate the concerns, accomplish the task, evaluate the software anyway, start the phone calls to start getting more information. Then my report would have been, this is the software, it's used everywhere, it can do what we want it to do. However, we have this issue with the company and present that to my superiors and let them decide. Then did you start investigating the company? Yes. What happened next was um, I spoke with Jeff Goins and he told me that Basically, not only was Yasin Kadi uh, was an investor, but that a Jakub Mertza was on the board of directors, and he had been the subject of Operation Green Quest. Many of his Herndon, Virginia vehicles and companies and 
financing companies had been raided in March 2002. And again, that uh, Mertza was on the board of directors. As we spoke, other names started to come out. My head was pretty much spinning at this point, and I said, have you reported any of this to the FBI? And the answer came back, yes. So I wrote a report to the FBI, and um, I said, okay, if the Boston FBI has been told, I need to speak with people there because it's not just my group that's evaluating them. It's so many other groups, but I couldn't believe that if this was all true, that PTAC was still being used by the Department of Defense. There's something a little bizarre about all of this. And really, I was beginning to understand unwillingly that the world was, was not the way we thought of it. Here's where I'll begin. In 2000, I worked for a software development entity called Silverstream Software. I worked in sales, and in October of that year, I won the largest client in company history which soon thereafter led to the acquisition of Silverstream by Novell. In contextual hindsight and considering my audience, my Gordon Gecko was a client named Martian McLennan. Marsh, of course, is the world's largest insurance brokerage. And you might also recall that Marsh was located right below Cantor Fitzgerald in the North Tower, and approximately 295 Marsh employees were murdered that morning, along with the other innocent victims and employees who either knew too much or too little about their chosen work environment. Silverstream's technology was on the cutting edge of Internet solutions, offering software to web-enable the critical business functions of Fortune 500 companies, basically integrating and making available on the web the disparate legacy applications and mainframes while simultaneously streamlining workflow and traditional paper processes, with the end result, of course, being a lower cost of operation and more efficient transactions, because inefficiencies like people were being taken out of the loop. And here's where it gets interesting. Silverstream had built internet trading and transactional platforms for Merrill Lynch, Deutsche Bank, Bankers Trust, Alex Brown, and Morgan Stanley, to name a few. I was responsible for some of these accounts at one time or another, and coincidentally, several of these companies purchased space in the World Trade Center and simultaneously completed disaster recovery and business continuity implementations just prior to 9-11. And hopefully you're already somewhat familiar with the roles these financial institutions played in September 11th. And if you include Marsha McLennan and another client of mine in 2001, AIG on the list, you pretty much have the major players involved in the financial aspect of the 9-11 fraudulent trading activity. You might have also noticed the hidden information regarding Marsh in the bottom half of the screen approximately six and a half minutes in the loose change. I didn't realize the scope of these connections myself until about a month after 9-11 when I read Mike Rupert's article on the criminal insider trading that took place on September 11th. Rupert's contentions are accurate to a great degree, but it's also important that one separate his documented facts from his peak oil theories. Now, I mention this only in passing because it has everything to do with the gas prices these days, and since people are now pawning their possessions to fill their tanks, I figured I'd mention it just in case you're interested. You see, whether or not oil is truly a fossil fuel and therefore depletable or is actually abiotic and therefore regenerative is up for debate. However, I agree that oil is used to exert a measure of control in populations and to that end. You may want to check out a book called The Deep Hot Biosphere sometime as it explains that oil is not a fossil fuel and therefore not in danger of running out, but I digress. If you're interested in researching what I just mentioned about the financial institutions involved in 9-11, just Google Buzzy Krongard plus A.B. Brown and you'll see the connections to our intelligence community. Getting back on track, let me tell you what Marsh was up to. 
In 2000, SilverStream was contracted by Marsh to provide a technological solution beyond what we had done for any of the above-named companies insofar as it would be used to electronically connect Marsh to its major business partners via Internet portals for the purpose of creating paperless transactions and expediting revenue and renewal cycles and built from the ground up at the client's site. SilverStream provided a specific type of connectivity that was used to link AIG and Marsh and McLennan, the first two commercial companies on the planet to employ this specific type of transaction, and in fact, Marsh was presented with something called the Accord Award, A-C-O-R-D, in the summer of 2001 for being the first commercial corporation to do so. And what you should take away from that is this. It means that no other companies were doing this type of transaction, so the question in your mind should be, what then were Marsh and AIG doing, and why did they need to leverage technologies that no other commercial entity on the face of the earth needed to conduct business? Okay, well, I had been assigned to JETA as chief of the non-immigrant visa section and about uh, went out there in, in, in 1987. And before I went, I heard rumors that there were some strange issues going on in the visa section. Uh, the American ambassador at the time, um, Walter Cutler, spent 45 minutes with me in what I thought was going to be a, a courtesy call uh, and talked about all the problems my predecessor had created for the embassy by denying visas to people. And uh, nobody knew what was going on, and I asked the desk officer, the man who was sort of the... Uh, uh, the embassy's ambassador in Washington to, the, to its own government, what this was all about. And he just said, well, Walter Cutler is a queer duck. Well, when I got there, uh, I was praised as being entirely different from my predecessor and uh, was told about all the problems she created for them there, but they never really clarified what it was. Uh, and after a while, I found out uh, people would come to me for a visa and they had no ties to Saudi Arabia or their own country that were strong enough to compel them to return once they had gone to the United States. They didn't have family there, they didn't have a good job, they didn't have property, and so forth. And most of the time, they couldn't tell me where they were going in the United States and what they were going to do. Uh, in one instance, there were two Pakistanis who said they were going to a trade show with uh, the Commerce Department. And when I asked them, well, what was the name of the show, they couldn't name the show, and they couldn't name the city in which it was being held. And I had been at the Commerce Department prior to that and knew well that the, the American Automotive Parts Association uh, held its uh, yearly um, uh, exhibition in Chicago. And I said, no, you're not getting a visa. And not long after, Paul Arvid Tveit, who at TVEIT had been a clandestine service officer with the CIA concealed in the commercial section, he demanded that I give visas to these guys because it was important. I said, well, they can't tell me why they're going to the States. They can't tell me where they're going. They don't even know the name of the, the other part show they're going to. So why should I give them a visa? The law is pretty clear on this. And then he went to the chief of the visa section, Justice Stevens, who uh, I sort of wonder about who he really worked for, and got visas for these guys. This went on and went on and went on through the year and a half or so that I was in Jeddah. Uh, I got, finally got threats from the Consul General, Jay Freres, F-R-E-R-E-S, uh, who was the driving force behind the, the program for these visas for unqualified applicants. And he had been outed by a German correspondent uh, years ago uh, saying that he was a CIA operative. And at one point, the, um, uh, the CIA base, base chief, Eric Qualkenbush, who's retired now in Findlay, Ohio, 
uh, he came to me and said, well, you know, hey, uh, we got this Iranian going over to the States. We, we want to talk to him in Washington. Uh, he owns a rug shop in, in, uh, in Jeddah, and uh, we, uh, he says he's going over to um, deal with his clients in the States. And, you know, make it look good, wink, wink. And I think, all right. And the guy showed up. He'd been to the States several times before. He had visas. He's always come back. He had a legitimate business. He had a legitimate reason for going to the United States. And I thought, well, okay, why did I need to be given a, uh, a heads up on this when I wasn't given this to these other guys? Well, once I was out of the Foreign Service, after having been fired for asking awkward questions and complaining to the uh, the embassy in, in, in Riyadh and to the uh, State Department, including the Bureau of Consular Affairs and the uh, uh, Inspector General's Office and the Bureau of Diplomatic Security, uh, I found out from the journalist Joe Trento, T-R-E-N-T-O, plus a couple of other uh, good contacts, that what was really going on was a visas for terrorist program. People were being recruited by the Central Intelligence Agency uh, with the help of Osama bin Laden, its asset, to go and fight the Soviets in Afghanistan. And they were brought to the United States for training, rewards, uh, education, whatever. And I said, ah, now I know why they raised such hell with me and my predecessor, who also complained, but she still has a job. Uh, so I began to ask questions. I began to write Letters. I began to. Uh, I filed a Freedom of Information Act request and an appeal and then and, and a court case and absolutely was stonewalled every step of the way. Um, and I don't think my case this is all that unique. I think it's happened to other people before, but uh, <laughs> there's nothing much much you can do about it. I talked to one guy, an attorney, uh, and he told me, "Well, you know, you're going to have to prove that you know how uh, to manage the State Department better than the State Department does." Hi, my name is Barry Jennings, 52 years old. Um, I've worked for, for 33 years at one location. When the Office of Emergency Management did an activation, they always, they always included our locale. And what, it, what, it, what, what we did was, what they did was monitor the emergency. They actually coordinated the emergency through several agencies. I, I received the call shortly after the first plane hit. I got there... Uh, I had to be inside on the 23rd floor when the second plane hit. Upon arriving into the OEM uh, EOC, we noticed that everybody was gone. I saw coffee that was on a desk. Still, the smoke was still coming off the coffee. I saw, I saw uh, half-eaten sandwiches. And only me, Mr. Hess, was up there. Um, after I called several individuals, one individual told me that um, to leave and leave right away. Mr. Hess came running back in and said, we're the only ones up here, we got to get out of here. He found the stairwell. So we, we subsequently went to the stairwell and we're going down the stairs. When we reached the eighth or the sixth floor, the landing that we were standing on gave way. There was an explosion and the landing gave way. And I was left there hanging. I had to climb back up, and now I had to walk back up to the eighth floor. When I made it to the sixth floor, and, and, and the, there was an explosion, the explosion was beneath me. Keep in mind now, it's pitch black in there. All the lights went out. So when the explosion happened, it blew us back. 
I'm thinking I'm standing on a, on on the landing. I'm actually holding on to a pole b above us. And I had to climb back up because Hess is yelling, what do we do now? I said, there's only one thing we can do, is, and it's go back up. Both buildings were still standing. Keep in mind, I told you the fire department came and ran. They came twice. Why? Because building tower one fell, then tower two fell. And then when they came back, they came back with all concern now, like, to get me the hell out of there. I was trapped in there for several hours. I was trapped in there when, when both buildings came down. All this time... I'm hearing all type of explosions. All this time I'm hearing explosions. When they finally got to us and they took us down to what what they they uh, called the lobby, because I asked them, I said, when we got down there, I said, where are we? He said, this was the lobby. And I said, you gotta be kidding me. It was total ruins, total ruins. Now keep in mind, when I came in there, the lobby had nice escalators. It was a huge lobby. And for me to see what I saw, it was unbelievable. And the firefighter that took us down kept saying, do not look down. And I kept saying, why? He said, do not look down. And we were stepping over people. And you know you can feel when you're stepping over people. This big, giant police officer came to me. And he says, you have to run. I said, I can't run. My knees are swollen. He said, you're going to have to get on your knees and crawl in. He said, because we have reports of more explosions. And that's when I started crawling. And I saw this guy fall behind me. And his comrades came to his aid. They dragged him to safety. I'm just confused about one thing and one thing only. Why World Trade Center 7 went down in the first place. I'm very confused about that. A 53-year-old man who was relatively healthy, who had no history that we know of, of, you know, any major health problems, just passes away. There's no explanation. I think this is where... You know, the people were left with as this all happened. We just, and this is kind of what bothered us all. We didn't have any explanation. I mean, here's what is, is apparently a 9-11, major 9-11 witness who's gone on the record with people I guess he shouldn't be talking to because God knows we shouldn't talk to the alternative media. And he just passes away at a very young age with no explanation. The mystery involved in this was, if nothing else, compelling, and we want to have closure here, as I'm sure his family wants to have closure. Okay, you have, uh, you've, got, you've gone back to New York, Dylan, and this is why we have you on today. You've gone back to New York, you, you, you've looked into this a little bit more, and you might have uh, at least some clue as to maybe what happened or how the circumstances might have been a little funky. Uh, I want you to talk about that. What do we know now? Well, pretty much um, there was one thing that I wanted to bring up um, before we get into that is that the only, pretty much the only thing that we could gather was that, from what we heard, is that he spent a couple days in the hospital and then passed away. And that was pretty much the only thing we could hear. There was no obituaries. There was nothing in the public record at all. There was nothing. And Barry also happened to die the very week that the final NIST report on Building 7 came out. I, I believe literally three days before. I mean, yeah. I, may, I may be off by like one or two, but he literally died the week the NIST report comes out and says that, you know, says what it says. You know, I don't need to go into it. And, of course, completely discounting his testimony. And I, I tried to tell the guys at NIST, and I tried to point them towards the interview that we did with them. Just in terms of full disclosure, I was like, you know, guys, just in terms of your investigation, I figured you might be interested in seeing this footage. So with that being said, I found myself back in New York 
you know, these past couple days, you know, doing some work on some things. And uh, the first thing I decided to do when I got my rental car was drive down to Long Island because I still had Barry's address from when he gave it to me. You know, he gave me his address to mail him a uh, DVD of the interview and stuff, and it was done. So I still had that, and I was like, I, I have to do this. You know, I have a car. I have a couple hours. I need to drive to his house and just see for myself. Uh, so it was about, about an hour from Manhattan. You know, I had a, had a long time to think about things and just kind of prepare myself. I actually had a letter written up just in case they weren't there, just kind of like, you know, hey, offering my condolences and just letting them know that I was in the area, you know, if they wanted to meet up or talk, you know, just, just to put it out there. Because I, I guess the last thing that I want them to think is that, you know, that I don't care or that I never cared because I, I still do. Yeah. I always will. I mean, I'm not, I, I have to know what happened to him. I mean, and especially if something, especially if something bad happened to Barry and especially if his family is still suffering because of it, the last thing that I want them to feel is that their life is completely destroyed and there's no, there's no way of at least trying to fix it. I mean, and I don't know, man, I, it's, it, it was rough going up to his house even before I could even see it, you know, because I didn't know what to expect. You know, was his family going to be there? Were they going to be gone? You know, what was going to be there? So I pulled up. And it was funny because it was, uh, it was, I, it was I, I don't want to say ironically, but it was oddly enough, it was Easter Sunday when I, I wound up driving out there, and that was pretty much my only window to do it. And I was pulling up, and I saw all these cars, like, parked, like, in the neighborhood pulling up, and I was like, man, they're probably going to be home. You know, they're probably going to be in the middle of Easter, and I was like, maybe I really shouldn't, you know, if they're, like, trying to enjoy their Easter and they're doing their family thing, you know, maybe I shouldn't drop in on them. And I pull up the house, and it's clearly empty. Uh... There's a, a Century 21 sign on the front lawn. The, the Jennings family sign is still in the mailbox, but when you open up the mailbox, there's a little red card in there from the post office that says this residence is vacant. You go up to the front door. The front door is completely padlocked. So, uh, you know, I, you know, I left my letter there just, you know, just to leave it. I, you know, I wrote it. I, I brought it all the way there. I figured just leave it there. Just if, if, if by some some means it gets to them, you know, at least I tried. <laughs> Again, like I, I you know. left you left a letter on the door. Do you wanna just share very very quickly, you know, maybe some of the contents of that letter? Uh it's up to you. Yeah, I mean as, as I said earlier, pretty much just offering my condolences, telling them who I was, that I was the one that interviewed him uh mid two thousand seven and that I was in the area. Uh, if they wanted to meet up and chat or, you know, just, you know, or say whatever they wanted to say to me, really. I mean, if they if they wanted to meet up and tell me that, you know, if they wanted to meet up and tell me I'm the worst person in the world and that I completely destroyed their life, then, you know, that's that's what I had to deal with. You know, I'm, the letter was pretty much just putting myself out there. Like, first and foremost, deepest condolences, and second, also, you know, asking them, you know, or like, you know, not like asking them, but like just letting them know that I've been trying to figure out what happened to Barry. And that actually leads me, well, first, before I, I wrap up that, or before I carry on, I don't want to wrap up. So, so I, I drop my letter at the house and then I, I drive away. It, it was creepy. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it was really creepy, man. It was it was such a weird feeling, like to be at his house, and like it was it was kind of that feeling, like you know, if only I, if only I could have done this earlier, like if only I could have had a car in New York, and I could have commute, because I didn't want to call them, I didn't want to call their house when I first figured out that he passed away, because I figured there were enough people that were harassing them. But regardless, um, that leads me to my next point, which which actually 
uh, happened about a month or so ago. I had a friend hire uh, a private investigator, one of the best ones in New York State. Gave her, you know, Barry's name, age, uh, his address, and we were like, we're simply trying to find information on what happened to this individual. There is nothing in the public record, and we're simply, you know, we know he was 53 when he died, we know the date that he died, but that's all we know. And I think it was uh, no less than 24 hours later that my friend got a response back, and pretty much word for word, Due to some of the information I have uncovered, I have determined that this is a job for the police. I have refunded your credit card. Please do not contact me ever again about this individual. Now, when a man passes away innocently in a hospital, I don't think that it's that big of a deal for a private investigator to disclose that kind of information. Well, first of all, I mean, a private investigator is there to, you know, make the paycheck and to satisfy the customer like any else running a business that's that's really odd and that's a huge was, a huge red flag sum of money too you know it wasn't we're not talking like hey you know here's 50 bucks can you look into this i mean it was definitely a sum that wouldn't be turned down unless there was something at stake so that was very spooky to get that back from her and the second private investigator that we heard back from i haven't actually seen this email but you know i saw the other one so therefore i can take the information on the second one in confidence that um from what i gather his death certificate apparently wasn't even filled out properly this is the cbs evening news with bob schieffer since 9-11, the question has been, did the government have information before 9-11 that a terrorist attack was coming, but somehow failed to act on it? Well, today, a maverick congressman is saying that months before the attack, a military intelligence unit identified four men as terrorists with al-Qaeda connections, but government lawyers told them not to share the information with the FBI because the men had entered this country legally. The four turned out to be 9-11 hijackers. Here's Wyatt Andrews. According to Congressman Kurt Weldon, it was a secret Pentagon intelligence unit, codenamed Able Danger, that knew a year before 9-11 that lead hijacker Mohammed Atta was in the United States and connected to al-Qaeda. And as you can see, they identified Mohammed Atta's cell. In the summer of 2000, he says, the Pentagon Special Ops Command had identified two terrorist cells inside the U.S. and knew of the connection between Atta and three other men who became hijackers. When the agents recommended telling the FBI, Weldon says, Clinton administration lawyers said no, because Atta was in the country legally and could not be targeted by military intelligence. And their recommendation to bring the FBI in to take that cell out, which was ignored, and they were told you can't do that. So a year before 9-11, they had their picture? They had the picture of Mohammed yes. Atta and they knew roughly where he was? Yes. Weldon, who's a ranking member of both the Armed Services and Homeland Security Committees, says he got this story from three agents in the Able Danger Unit, one of whom confirmed this to CBS News. But there are major questions. If the Pentagon ever knew in advance about Mohammed Atta, that was news to Secretary Rumsfeld. I have no idea. I've, I've never heard of it until this morning. It was also news to the 9-11 Commission, which looked extensively at Atta's history. One Pentagon agent says he told the Commission staff about Atta. The Commission says the agent never mentioned Atta's name. After all, that name was very familiar to us. And if his name had been mentioned, it would have set off all kinds of alarm bells, and it would become a focus of our investigation. 
Okay, now, when you came back to the United States and wanted to tell the 9-11 Commission that the CIA had squelched you from dealing with this asset, this human being, right. what happened? Well, it was, a, it was like the Twilight Zone. After the initial disclosure, Dr. Zelikow came to me at the end of the meeting, gave me his card and said, what you said today is, is critically important, very important. Please come see me when we return to Washington, D.C. I returned to Washington, D.C., January of 2004, call in. They say, we want to see you, stand by. Nothing happens. A week goes by. I call again. They say, we don't need you to come in. We, we have all the information on able danger we need. Thank you anyway. And that was where it ended. All right, so the information that you told Dr. Zelikow in Afghanistan about the CIA interfering with your ability to provide actionable intelligence to the United States government, intelligence that might have helped them find out who caused 9-11, uh, you right. were not permitted to testify about. That's correct. Okay. Did you ever have a conversation with anybody on the 9-11 Commission, any one of the actual yes. commissioners, about what you knew, when you knew it, what he knew, and when, when he knew it? I, and... September of 2005, 2005, um, I met with one of the members of the 9-11 Commission in Philadelphia. I had a, a lunch with him, and during this lunch, I provided to him all the background that we're talking about now and in greater detail. During that meeting, he confirmed to me that he had never heard any of this, and had he heard of it, it would have been something that was very much of interest to he and the Commission. All right. At the time you met with this 9-11 uh, Commissioner in uh, Philadelphia in 2005, correct right. me on my dates, the 9-11 report, that 500-page monstrosity that a lot of us, certainly in this business, read, had it been published yet? It had been published in mouth, yes. Okay, so it was published without the benefit of what you knew. Right. Did you ask him at, at that lunch meeting in Philadelphia whether or not anybody on the 9-11 Commission had an agenda or was covering up for somebody or was protecting somebody? The, the essence I, I received, and I asked that question directly about what the nature was of why they did, you know, what was the focus of the commission. And during that conversation, this commissioner said flat out that everybody on the commission was covering for someone. Now, let me, let me hear that again. Everybody on the commission, you mean the commissioners themselves, was covering for someone. That was the way I interpreted that statement, yes. What do you think he meant? Did you ever ask him what he meant by that? Well, I did. And, and the clarification was the, the fact that we, they, they talked about the Jamie Gorelick issue. The, a number of the commissioners, to include this one, felt that Jamie Gorelick should never have been on a commission because of some of the causal actions and effects of her actions right. within the context of the Jamie Gorelick was a deputy attorney general in the Clinton administration on the 9-11 commission during the Bush administration while she was in the Clinton administration she basically said to intelligence you can't talk to law enforcement that's correct. law enforcement you can't talk to intelligence that's correct that was the problem with the wall her. memo yes sir. okay were, were, were members of the 9-11 commission did they each have their own agenda according to your friend on the commission that's correct everybody had some issue they were looking at for someone else Wow. So there's a lot of things that never made it in that 9-11 report. Judge, that is the bottom line. And I think it's been revealed over and over for the past, past, past two years that things were either by negligence left out or, and I believe, by purpose left out. All right. Switching gears before I go. there is a call for a member of the 9-11 panel to step down. The House Judiciary Committee chairman says Jamie Gerlich should resign from the 9-11 Commission. He says a memo she wrote back in 1995 helped keep counterintelligence information out of criminal investigations. 
The chairman says she has an inherent conflict of interest. Major Garrett's following this one in a Fox report live from Washington. Major? Shep, Commissioner Gorelick served in the Clinton administration in the mid-1990s. It was then that the Justice Department, which, by the way, President Clinton put in charge of all U.S. anti-terror efforts, elevated and intensified the division between CIA and FBI counterterrorism activities. That puts Gorelick very near one of the commission's central questions. Why did the government fail to anticipate and or stop 9-11? She's investigating herself. And there's no way an independent commission can come up with an independent conclusion when you have one of the participants and what appears to be a significant part of the problem sitting in the commission meetings and having a vote in the commission. Gorelick wrote this memo in 1995 as President Clinton's deputy attorney general. That memo elevated the wall of separation between the CIA and FBI a move that may have blocked information sharing on two 9-11 hijackers who later flew an airliner into the Pentagon. Even so, Commission Chairman Tom Kane dismissed calls for Gorelick's resignation. Kane said Gorelick has properly recused herself from questioning former Clinton administration associates. She is, in my mind, one of the finest members of the commission, one of the hardest working members of the commission, and by the way, one of the most nonpartisan and bipartisan members of the commission. So, um... People ought to stay out of our business. Critics say the business of the commission is finding the truth. That's more difficult, they say, when a commissioner, such as Gorelick, sits in judgment of herself. President named a supporter, Dr. Henry Kissinger, Secretary of State in the Nixon and Ford administrations, to head the panel. He has a penchant for secrecy, which is not what's needed here. There are questions about his role in Vietnam, his role in the coup in uh, Chile. Several family members approached Kissinger and requested a meeting at his office in New York. Prior to the meeting, Kristen Breitweiser conducted a thorough investigation of Kissinger's potential conflicts of interest. Probably much to the chagrin of some of the people in the room, Lori asked some very pointed questions. Would you have any Saudi American clients that you would like to tell us about? And he was very uncomfortable, kind of twisting and turning on the couch. And then she asked whether he had any clients by the name of Bin Laden. And he just about fell off his couch. Former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger stepped down from the position Friday. We thought the meeting went well. Investigate, but not too deeply. That's the message inside documents from senior officials with the Bush administration to the 9-11 Commission as they searched for answers after the attacks. Russ Baker is the author of Family of Secrets. He joins me now from our studio in New York. Mr. Baker, let's get to the specifics of this letter. It's dated January 6, 2004, and essentially it shows that full and complete disclosure was not, in fact, what senior Bush administration officials wanted. Can you elaborate on this? Well, they clearly didn't want full and complete disclosure on 9-11. We've seen that over and over again. The most recent, uh, this particular document, basically what happened was uh, a, a document was sent to the 9-11 Commission co-chairman and only to them, and it said, uh, don't ask to see the uh, detainees. Uh, don't ask to talk to them. If you do, you will be crossing the line, that's the quote, uh, uh, between a uh, legitimate right to know and America's need to defend itself. From what I understand, this document was recently obtained by the ACLU. Um, and in it, the officials denied the Bipartisan Commission's request to question de terrorist detainees, as you were talking about. 
uh, basically saying that doing so would cross a line. Um, I want to I want to understand what they were saying. The reasoning for this was. Well, they didn't give any reasoning. Uh, they they left it at that and. Of course, the speculation is what could that have been about? Uh, the 9-11 Commission was charged with trying to get to the bottom of the larger affair, what had happened in the first place, uh, and what had the U.S. response been, had it been correct, and so forth. Of course, there are so many questions. Uh, a large share of the public feels that they haven't gotten the whole story, and this only confirms that. Here you have them saying, uh, don't talk to uh, people who may have had some sort of knowledge about the operation itself, and of course, the Commission had every right to want to talk to these people. There is speculation that the real reason they didn't want them to talk to it was that talk to them was that at that point they were unaware uh, that the interrogators were using uh, basically what, what, what was tantamount to torture and that this had not come out. So I'm curious, I mean, in your research, what has, um, tell me some of the, the more specific things that you found. Uh, I mean, what, what we're seeing is that the 9-11 the Commission, which already understood that it couldn't probe too deeply into many of these matters, itself was extremely frustrated. Uh, now we're finding, of course, that they told them, don't talk to the, uh, the de detainees. But they also had this policy where when they went and spoke to even, let's say, officials of the Central Intelligence Agency or the FBI or what have you, the, the agencies required them to have minders. This is a, another person sitting there basically sort of intimidating the person who was being asked, and I can tell you from my experience over the years, uh, covering situations in authoritarian and totalitarian countries, that's what you expect there. You certainly don't expect that kind of attitude in the United States. So there are all kinds of reasons. We thought we were set up to fail. We got started late. We had a very short time frame. Indeed, we had to get it extended. Uh, we did not have enough money. They were, they were afraid we were going to hang somebody that we would point the finger. Lee and I write in our book that um, we think the commission in many ways was set up to fail because we had um, not enough money, we didn't have enough time, we'd been appointed by the most partisan people in Washington. This film shows how the official investigation of 9-11 failed to reveal the role of some key players in the terror plot. Thesis The 9-11 Commission was effectively obstructed from doing so by its own leadership. Here are the facts. Two of the supposed hijackers, Khalid Almidar and Nawaf Al-Azmi, lived in California before the attacks. The CIA knew that they were in the country and that they belonged to Al-Qaeda, but kept this information secret. Not even the FBI was informed. In California, the two preparing hijackers were supported by a man named Omar al-Bayoumi. He gave them money and helped them in many ways. Bayoumi had close contacts with Saudi government officials and returned to Saudi Arabia right before the 9-11 attacks. After 9-11, FBI investigators were suspecting that Bayoumi, Midar and Hazmi were under control of Saudi intelligence, working in cooperation with a befriended CIA who allegedly wanted to recruit the preparing 9-11 hijackers as double agents. 
to what success remains unclear till today. Two investigators of the 9-11 Commission, Michael Jacobson and Dana Liesemann, found out about Bayoumi's alleged role and also about the covered network that surrounded him in the United States. They wanted to dig deeper. But as Dana Liesemann repeatedly asked the Commission's executive director, Philip Zelikov, for more resources and access to important documents, she was blocked and finally even fired by him. The alleged reason? She had obtained a copy of a classified report by the 9-11 Congressional Inquiry about the Bayoumi network Zelikov hadn't allowed her to review. After she had been fired, her colleague Michael Jacobson submitted their common findings in a final draft for the 9-11 Commission report. But at the last minute, he learned that his direct superior Dieter Snell and executive director Philip Zelikov were meeting to rewrite the account, thereby removing all the serious allegations against Bayoumi and the secret network that had helped the alleged hijackers. According to Snell and Zelikov, nothing of this should even be mentioned in the report. Jacobson tried to intervene, but he had to compromise. The explosive evidence was not totally deleted from the report, but instead moved to the annex, where few readers would find it in the tiny type of the footnotes. But why did Zelikov engage in obstructing his own stuff, and even trying to cover up a most essential investigation? It is known that he had close ties to the Bush administration, being a close friend to then National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice, who in turn belonged to the closest circle around George W. Bush. Furthermore, it's known that Zelikov had worked on the transition team for the incoming President Bush in the year before the attack. It's also no secret that the Bush-Cheney White House had long tried to block an independent investigation of 9-11 at all. But there was more. In 2002, Zelikov had even authored a national security strategy for the White House that proposed preemptive war as a new military doctrine. That paradigm change laid the intellectual groundwork for the coming Iraq war, a war which had been a major objective of the Bush administration and which would have been unthinkable without 9-11. One year later, in 2003, that same Zelikov was as executive director in charge of the whole 9-11 commission, where he first blocked and then fired the staff member that had relentlessly tried to find the truth about the real helpers of the alleged hijackers. A truth that remains hidden till today. Let's turn a page now. This week, President Bush and Vice President Dick Cheney will appear together before the 9-11 Commission. Now, on the surface, it seems to be an unusual arrangement, and some Democrats have even called Cheney a ventriloquist. The story brings us to tonight's newsmaker, David Gergen. He was an advisor to four presidents, and I asked him earlier if he was disturbed by the ground rules the White House imposed on the 9-11 Commission. 
I think it's a very good idea for the president and the vice president to testify, each to offer his own testi uh, testimony under oath about what happened around 9-11 and what they think ought to become in the future. I think it's all right for them to uh, testify together. Uh, I don't think that was I, a deal that they cut with the 9-11 commission in order for Condoleezza Rice to testify publicly that the president and vice president would agree to meet with the commission, but only behind closed doors and only sitting side by side. Why would they want to want to I want to say strategize to testify together? Well, uh, it, it's hard to know. And of course, there's an enormous amount of speculation, and 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 the, and the pundits, uh, the commentariat, if you would, has uh, argued that this only indicates that the the president, you know, can't get his story straight. I don't think that's the case. I imagine more than anything else, Carol, they're trying to ensure that there's no daylight between their versions of what happened on 9-11 and especially in, in the reading of the intelligence and that sort of thing. If they testified on different days, you can be sure that some commissioners would look and find little little hints of uh, differences that would only bring more... Uh, uh, more controversy. So I think I think most for most Americans, the critical thing is not whether they testify together, but whether they testify at all. And the fact that they're testifying, mm -hmm. I think, is a plus. But they're not testifying under oath. Does that concern you? I, I would prefer it under oath, but it doesn't bother me particularly. After all, this is the President of the United States. He is not required to appear before this. This is a voluntary appearance on his part, as it is for the Vice President. I think it does. Uh, you know, does raise questions about executive privilege, which they've obviously waived, and, and I think that's in the country's interest. So I'm not. Uh, uh, there, there, there is a speculation, but it, it, it doesn't bother me. And, and I think the main thing is that they testify. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have to tell you, I think the other aspect of this is being overlooked in a lot of the conversation. Like what is that? When, when Bill Clinton came in, they spent part of the time, in, again, behind closed doors, by the way, without, and not under oath. Uh, they spent part of the time uh, talking about what happened before 9-11 on the Clinton watch, but they spent a lot of time asking him his opinions about how to put together the intelligence agencies in the future. And this is exactly where I'm sure the commission is going to want to go with both the president and the vice president, because the, the commission wants to come out with a report that has impact that really influences mm -hmm. the president's thinking on this, the vice president's thinking. Right. And this will be a rare opportunity to really talk through some alternative ways of organizing. Are they really going to break up the FBI or not? Of course, there's a lot of opposition to that uh, within the FBI. You're not concerned that it's behind closed doors, that none of the notes are going to be released from this meeting, that it's really more consultative in nature that the 9-11 Commission is just trying to get information. Because, you know, with all the publicity about uh, what did he know, when did he know, uh, about the threat of al-Qaeda, uh, this whole appearance is taking on um, the tone of a lie detector test. So, Mr. President, what did your advisors really tell you before 9-11? Well, I, I guess to some it's, it looks like a lie detector test. I don't see it in those terms. Uh, listen, the, 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 the question is, should he the big question is, is the president going to appear before the commission? And he said yes. Would it ideally be in public? Uh, yes, it would ideally be in public. But the critical thing is, that the, it, what we're waiting for now is the commission to sort through all the evidence, including the, uh, the, the discussions with the president and vice president, to make a report to the country here in the next few months about what really happened. They have to sort through a lot of stuff. I don't think. There have been a lot of instances in the past when presidents have uh, been involved with issues about what happened and when the president uh, that the president himself has not testified in public. Rather, a delegation has gone to the White House to talk to the president. This is, there, this is, this is very consistent with a long uh, history of presidents who said, okay, I'll talk.
but I'm not going to make a spectacle of it. Okay. I, I'm not going to be summoned up there. I will come voluntarily and sit down with you and talk behind closed doors. Thank you very much, David okay. Gergen. Thank you, Carol. Well, some say the 9-11 Commission is looking for a fall guy in the attacks, but David Gergen says you won't see any heads roll. He says so far the administration has been successful at protecting its ranks. Look, uh, yeah. Why didn't they talk about Building 7 in the report? That's good. Why, do you, why do you think that was I don't really have any, I don't have an easy answer for no. you. I, mean, I we would ask no. it. But, uh, Can yeah. you see this medical thing right now? Yeah. Anyway, thank I you. Know, do you support a criminal investigation in 9-11? Because I know yours was an exposition. It was it was not a criminal investigation. I don't think so, but I, but I, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, do, I do support a permanent commission to examine. Not just that, but lots of other things in this area. But if it's a permanent cover-up, then it's, uh, it's. I mean, if it's an act of war and it's and it's it's hiding things, which everyone on your commission knew that the Pentagon was changing their stories, lying to you, right. and it's a cover-up of an act of war and under Article 3, Section 3 of the Constitution, it's treason. So unless we get to the very bottom of it, then we're still talking tr a treasonous exposition. This is a longer conversation. I'm not okay. sure you have, and this will ever get to the bottom of it. We have to, or we can't can. save our countries. I don't think, well, if that's, the, if that's the condition upon which we're going to be saving our country, I don't Because the problem is it's a 30-year-old it's conspiracy. Yeah. No, I'm talking about 9-11. That's what I'm talking oh, about. Oh, you are. You mean yeah. at this point? Yeah. Anyway, I got to right. okay, okay, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. I'm going to turn the camera around so we can get a little bit of that light on you. Okay. If that's okay. Yeah, oh, that's much better. Um, I guess, Jeremy, did you want to uh, start with anything that you were... Yeah, I, someone mentioned in there that you had said something real quickly about someone should write a book about the white van. What did, yeah, you, well, mean, what did you mean by that? Well, there was an incident where there was a white van in New Jersey across from the World Trade Center, and five Israelis, probably Mossad, were uh, giving the high five after the World Trade Center was hit. And they were arrested and then immediately spirited out of the country. The investigation was taken away at the Justice Department from uh, terrorism and put in national security, completely sealed off. Uh, you know, if you can look at it benignly, it was the Israelis stumbled across this. Can't believe it. I just don't know, but the, the parameters of people knew about this of 9-11 in advance are there, and they need to be investigated. Yeah, because that, it's, I mean, thank you for answering that, because I had a, a question I, I posed to uh, Chief Hayden when he was here. I asked him, I was like, is it possible that these Mossad assets were in place in New Jersey in order to film the first hit? And there's actually a lot of uh, reports that they were there set up before the first plane They hit. were, they were set up before the first plane So hit. you can confirm that, that's true. Yeah, yeah they were set up there before. So I, I asked him, is it possible that, that Mossad assets could be in place to film the first hit while... Hayden and the rest of the entire top tier, the military intelligence command structure, uh, supposedly found out about this from CNN or other TV stations. Do you think that's possible? That the Israelis knew and we didn't? Yeah. 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 I, mean, it's, I mean, here's the way it would work. They'd be watching, let's say, a Hamas cell in New York. They're all over New York. And they run into this guy, Octa, who's staying in an apartment. And he's talking about blowing the World Trade Center up. Now, an intelligence officer... Is going to say, hey, these guys are serious. Let's just go down there and look. Mm -hmm. I'm like doing a benign interpretation of this. Uh, 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 but no one's ever answered the question. No one's ever answered the question. Iranian connection to 9-11. Uh, no one's ever 
answer the question of Iranian sponsorship of Pan Am 103. The big national security questions are not answered. Well, I'm not proposing a conspiracy here. I'm just saying they're not answered. Well, we know now because that it was a conspiracy. They, they're, they're too difficult to answer, and they can't do anything about them. So they keep the information away. They kept the stuff, for instance, on Iran and 9-11. They kept it away from the 9-11 Commission. Report. Well, the other side of this is that it looks like 9-11, one side of it is this cover story in terms of the networks in the Middle East, and the other side is a military operation. Well, look, can you give me the name of the guy who recruited the 15 Saudis? No, we can't because they don't want it out. But they, they weren't the ones who were able to guide uh, uh, planes into Look, onto the Abu side Z- away from... Uh, Abu Zubaydah, one of the key guys, called Bondar in Aspen right up until the 10th of September and started calling it on the 16th of well, September. What does that have to do with these um, military war games that were completely a mimetic of the 9-11 operation? Look, I'm just saying, I'm with day. you. I got oh, a question. Yep. Okay. No, I'm just, yeah. Maybe I, I just have a more common sense question that uh, I'm not really well versed in all this. There seems to be so many different um, areas that don't add up as far as the war games, as Jeremy pointed out, as far as the insider trading with the airline stock. And there seems to be a lot of things that point to, you know, the high-level uh, inside uh, aspects of our government or uh, well, look, pockets Keen, in the intelligence community's involvement. Keen and how do Keen and they've all come out and said, it's in the 9-11 Commission that we don't have, these things need to be researched, and they haven't. Because they don't want people to know. So, it, given your Bush tried to stop sure, it. Sure, yeah, he did. He probably I'm just talking about the facts. I don't absolutely. I don't do yeah. conspiracy. We don't want to speculate on theories, but uh, you know, and the facts are very suggestive of it. Yes. It couldn't have been done without help from the inside, including well, these war games. I don't know who did. You, you, I don't know who did Line Eleven based on the official. But you speak as of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed as the mastermind of 9-11, and he had no way to plan all these war games that were the only way... I'm just taking out the 9-11 yeah. commission. Okay, I get what you're saying. Where he said, I, I didn't saying. work for Bin Laden. Okay. My question was, I'd ask him, who'd you work for then if you weren't working for Bin Laden? So when you say Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is the mastermind of 9-11, do you actually believe... Do you actually believe that, or is that? Are you just saying I'm just what quoting the story? The 9/11 Commission. Oh, okay. So, what do you believe, though? Because I mean, the national reconnaissance. My beliefs are irrelevant. Well, no, they're very important because the cover-up of 9/11, technically under the Constitution, Article Three, Section Three, is a cover-up of an act of war, and thus it is treasonous. So, we have to have these these answers. Anyone obfuscating the, what actually happened on 9/11 is technically guilty of treason and in in covering up an act of war. Why was there no accountability? Why didn't anybody get Fired. That's, That's a very good question. As well. right. People were promoted. Uh, people that towed the party line. The you people know, who stood down the, the FBI. We're not talking about me. We're talking Americans. If I were Americans, right. I'd demand answers. Yes. That's what we're trying to do. Yes. We're trying to well, have dialogue. We appreciate you talking with us. Okay, thanks. All right, Thank cool. you very much, And Bob. the last thing I would leave you with is National Reconnaissance Office was running a, a drill, a plane crash into their building. And you know they're staffed by DOD I know. CIA, the, right? I know the guy that went into his broker in San Diego and... And said, cash me out, it's going down tomorrow. Really? Yeah. That tells us something. That tells us something. Let's run the work in the White House. Two suspects are in FBI custody after a truckload of explosives was discovered around the George Washington Bridge. That bridge uh, links uh, New York to New Jersey over the Hudson River. Whether the discovery of those explosives had anything to do with other events of the day is unclear, but the FBI has two suspects in hand, said the truck uh, load of explosives, enough explosives were in the truck to do great damage to the George Washington Bridge. All right, meanwhile, the Central Intelligence Agency wants him dead or alive, but apparently the American-born terrorist with ties to the 9-11 hijackers has been a guest of honor at the Pentagon. Julie Kurtz joins us from Washington. 
You've got to be kidding me. Yeah, here's what we know. Fox News has learned that Anwar al-Awlaki, the American Muslim cleric, remember him, with a worldwide following, dined with military brass at the Pentagon within months of the 9-11 attacks. New documents obtained by Fox include an FBI interview conducted after the Fort Hood shootings. Uh, it states that al-Awlaki was taken to the Pentagon as part of the military's outreach to, quote, moderate Muslims, according to FBI documents. Now, the American cleric was interviewed at least four times by the FBI. FBI in the first uh, week after uh, the attacks because of his ties to the hijackers, but it appears none of this information was relayed to the Pentagon, where Alaki had lunch at the Secretary of the Army's Office of Government Counsel. Uh, at this point, a Defense Department spokesman uh, has declined our request for an interview, and it's uh, not clear, frankly, what exactly uh, the vetting process is at the Pentagon, which would have allowed a, a known associate of the 9-11 hijackers into the U.S. military's headquarters. We do know that currently Alaki is a high-priority target for the U.S. and the government of Yemen. He is connected to the 9-11 hijackers, the shootings at Fort Hood, and the failed Christmas Day bombing. So we'll have more on this uh, as the day goes on. Now, in today's close-up, the alleged mastermind of the 9-11 attacks is heard on tape in English claiming he was tortured. And Khalid Sheikh Mohammed says he lied because he wanted the harsh treatment of torture to stop and seen here both after his capture and with the long beard during a military tribunal at Guantanamo Bay in March of 2007. Uh, Muhammad was asked if he wanted to change anything he said in his original testimony, and this is his response. I said, enemy, combatant, I did it or not, 9-11 or others, but there are many detainees which you will receive classified against them, maybe they did not take from me, for many detainees, False Matthew Alexander is a former senior interrogator for the U.S. military who led the interrogation team that found Abu Musab al-Zarqari, and he's also the author of How to Break a Terrorist. Karen Greenberg is executive director for the Center on Law and Security at New York University. She is the author of The Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First 100 Days. And Jim Riches is the deputy chief of the New York City Fire Department. His son, Jimmy, was one of the firefighters killed in the attacks of 9-11. Jim is in Washington, where he attended a Department of Justice hearing on Guantanamo Bay detainees. Thank you all for joining us. An incredible panel of people. Matt, Theo, I would like to start off with you. Uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed saying he made things up. Does this then end the debate over whether you get accurate or reliable information when people are tortured? Well, I think as an experienced interrogator, there never was a debate. Uh, I know, like any experienced interrogator does, that if you use coercive techniques, what you're shooting for is the minimum amount of information uh, that that detainee is going to give to make the torture or the pain stop. Uh, and that information is always going to be suspect in terms of accuracy. Uh, my team and I, we used relationship building approaches. We relied on cooperation versus coercion. Uh, and the information we received turned out to be highly accurate. Uh, very complete and led to Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. Kara, let me bring you in on this. Some of the other things that uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed said, when he was questioned about where Osama bin Laden was, he would say, I didn't know. He said they would torture me. And then he would say, yes, he's in this area, lying, making up, sending uh, these officials on a wild goose hunt. Right. I mean, one of the things that his new information or his new testimony tells us is that it's not just the moral 
dilemma and the moral problem with torture and course of interrogation. It's also the legal process that it taints. And now we have a situation where Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is telling us that some of what he said under course of interrogation was valid, some might not be valid, some of what the other detainees said might be valid, some might not, and who's to say? And without the full well, isn't record... isn't he to say? He's saying, I made it up, point he, blank. He's saying what he made up, but how do we know what else he told us that he did make up or he didn't make up? So are you willing to believe some of what he says and then not the other half of what he says? Is it convenient picking of or parsing of, of what appeals to one's argument? I think what it does is to compromise the entire legal process. Because you don't know at what point he is going to say, I said this, and are we, how are we going to establish evidentiary standards? Are we going to give him a hearing so that there is some kind of tribunal that listens to the evidence and that listens to him saying what was false or what wasn't false and makes some uh, determination based on other evidence? It compromises the situation, which is the problem with torture to begin with. The official explanation for the destruction of World Trade Center Building 7 was given by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, also known as NIST, in late 2008. This presentation will help you understand why that official NIST explanation is false, because the collapse of Building 7 could never have started the way NIST says it did. For years, NIST promoted the hypothesis that diesel fuel fires, driven by diesel fuel tanks located within the building, had caused the collapse. But NIST abandoned that hypothesis in its final report. NIST also suggested for years that the damage caused by falling debris from the North Tower was a root cause of the collapse of Building 7. Ultimately, NIST gave up on that hypothesis as well. And contrary to some media reports, the building design was not an issue either. The NIST investigation began in May 2002 and NIST put out an interim report on Building 7 in 2004. Two years later, in 2006, NIST's lead investigator made it clear that they had little or no idea what happened to Building 7. We might wonder how anyone could have predicted this building would collapse, given that four years into the investigation, government scientists had no idea what happened. But in 2008, NIST said that what happened to Building 7 was obvious and that science was behind a new explanation. We're going to take a close look at NIST's final theory and discover for ourselves whether or not it is obvious. But we should remember that it is entirely computer-based. NIST did no physical testing at all to support its Building 7 report. Here's a photo of the area showing the critical column, column 79, that NIST said first failed in Building 7. NIST says fires on the northeast corner of Floor 12 heated the ceiling that included the floor beams for Floor 13, causing thermal expansion of the beams, which caused the girder at Column 79 to fall off its seat. NIST says that Column 79 buckled due to the loss of support from that girder, and then the whole building collapsed in a matter of seconds. Here's a diagram that shows NIST's view of how the floor beams on the northeast side of the building, shown here as purple lines, pushed against the critical girder. The girder connected column 79 to the external wall at column 44. The girder to column connections blown up in the inset diagram, showing how NIST envisions that the girder was pushed off at seat. On the bottom here, you can see the pictures that NIST used in its media presentation when it unveiled its final report, 
the picture is reversed again, but you can see the general idea. The NIST interim report from 2004 said that most of the beams and girders were made composite or one piece with the slabs using shear studs. In a deceptive turnabout, NIST did a reversal in its final report and said that no studs were installed on any of the girders. Unfortunately for NIST, it was not just its own 2004 interim report that contradicted this vital aspect of its final theory. The presence of shear studs on all the girders was also described by John Salvarinas, the project manager for Building 7, from the company that supplied the steel components. This diagram from an academic paper that Salvarinas wrote in 1986 shows that there were 30 shear studs on that critical girder. NIST claims that thermal expansion caused the breakage of over 100 high-strength bolts. The mechanism that NIST claims called all the, caused all this damage is called differential thermal expansion. This is when the expansion of the beam is much greater than the expansion of the concrete floor slab above it. Thermal expansion is not a new phenomenon, as NIST suggests, but has been a consideration throughout the history of structural design. You can see that point made here by two building professionals from Australia who wrote a response to NIST on its Building 7 report. These building professionals reported that they had actually done physical tests to see what thermal expansion would do to floor assemblies. These were just the kinds of tests that NIST should have done. Because they had actually done the tests, the Australians were able to state that the shear studs would not fail because in a building fire, the floor slab was heated as well and the entire composite assembly would expand together. So NIST final theory is at odds with actual experimental evidence from the testing of real floor assemblies. Another thing we need to understand is just how far that girder would have had to be pushed for it to walk off its seat, as NIST suggests. NIST reported that the girder at column 79 was 11 inches wide, the seat, and therefore the girder had to be pushed at least five and a half inches or half of that distance to walk off the seat. You can see that claim here in an excerpt from NIST's report. To repeat, NIST's final initial failure mechanism for Building 7 was that the critical girder was pushed five and a half inches by the expanding floor beams. The five and a half inches was needed in order for the vertical web of the girder and therefore the center of mass of the girder to move off of the seat. Because thermal expansion is a function of temperature, we need to know what temperature NIST says the beams reached so that we can estimate how much they expanded. This was a tricky question for NIST because at temperatures as high as 600 degrees Celsius, the steel will lose strength and stiffness and therefore not be able to extend into the girder. At the same time, if the temperature is not high enough, there wouldn't be enough expansion of the floor beams. What NIST settled on was the idea that the beam temperatures reached 400 degrees Celsius on the northeast corner of floor 12. On this slide, you can see an example of just how tenuous NIST's computer models were with respect to reality. 
This computer model had all the steel heating to extreme temperatures and all the bolts and other connections breaking within a matter of about two seconds. This is an example of how NIST computer modeling was not realistic. Once the temperature distribution needed for its theory was settled, NIST found a way to suggest that the differential thermal expansion could be possible, at least in the computer. They simply didn't heat the floor slab in the computer model. This is what most scientists would call fraud. But NIST theory has more problems than that. Given this temperature scenario, the amount of expansion by the beams would not satisfy the amount of expansion that NIST said was required, or five and a half inches. NIST provided an example of the equation that scientists use to calculate thermal expansion. When we put the correct values into the equation, we see that the maximum expansion would be only 3.3 inches. And as we already know from NIST, 3.3 inches would not be enough to cause the girder to walk off its seat. We know from the physical dimensions of the girder and the seat that the girder would have had to be pushed at least 5.5 inches for this very improbable scenario to even begin. Another thing NIST said was that there were seven-hour fires in Building 7, which gave the impression that the fires were very long and very hot. But early photographs did not show fires on floors 11 through 13, where NIST said the first failures occurred, until after 2 o'clock. And the building fell less than three and a half hours later, so there could not have been seven-hour fires. Underwriters Laboratories provided the fire resistance information for Building 7. There were requirements for fire resistance of the columns and floor steel in Building 7, just as there is for any skyscraper. The requirements were that these steel components had to withstand two to three hours of intense fire in standard tests. One big contradiction that NIST avoided is that its investigators knew that the fire load in the building would only support about 20 minutes of fire in a given area. When the NIST report talks about several hours of fire, it is deceptively talking about the time a fire lasts anywhere on a floor, not in one specific location. Underneath a floor beam, for example, the fire time is only about 20 minutes, as this exchange from a NIST advisory committee meeting indicates. We should be able to verify how long the fires lasted in a given location because there are photographs available from various times during the day. But it turns out that NIST did not use the photographs to verify its computer simulations. As you can see from this comparison of a photo in NIST's report, taken at about 10 minutes to 4, and the NIST simulation of fires on floor 12 at the same time, there's no correlation between NIST simulation and what really happened. At approximately 4 o'clock, NIST computer simulation shows raging fires across the north side windows of floor 12. The photo from about the same time shows no fires in that area at all. NIST admits that its models did not use, quote, the observed fire activity from photos and videos as a model input, unquote. Again, this is not science, and this is another example of why the NIST report is false. Regardless of the fact that the NIST World Trade Center 7 report is false in many ways, we would all like to see how NIST reached its conclusions, but we're not allowed to see those things. 
This tells us that release of that information might jeopardize public safety. But our safety has actually been jeopardized by NIST itself and its lies about what happened at the World Trade Center. NIST failed to explain why and how Building 7 collapsed, and a new investigation is needed. Please see the following websites for more information and for a chance to help. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much. And like Richard said, my name is Eric Lawyer, and I founded the Firefighters for Not Living Truth after I watched Richard in one of his presentations, and I realized that something more had to be done. And I just want to thank Richard for everything he's doing here, and the Firefighters for 9-11 Truth strongly support Richard Gage and all the architects and engineers that have the courage to sign that petition. And I know from personal experience there's about five times as many out there that believe what we believe but don't have the courage to sign it. So what I'm hoping today is that people will find the courage after listening to this presentation and seeing everybody here and seeing that we are behind it. We also demand an investigation that follows the national standards and has contempt and subpoena powers. 9-11 was the greatest loss of life and property damage in U.S. fire history. This should have been the most protected, preserved, over-tested, and thorough investigation of a crime scene in world history. Sadly, it was not. What was it? Well, we know from their own admission the majority of the evidence was destroyed. I, Like Richard said, 22 years of experience. I've seen a lot of crime scenes. I've never seen anything like this in my life. I was I was out at the site. I saw trucks leaving faster than you know anywhere I've ever seen. But I accepted it at the time, and for years I accepted it because it was a recovery and rescue operation, and that's normal to have something like that going. Again, we never seen anything like it, but that was expected. What I didn't know for years, what was going on behind the scenes, was that evidence was being destroyed when it was shipped off. Um, by their own admission, um, Tower 7 investigation, this investigation at Tower 7 had no physical evidence. How do you investigate a crime when you've destroyed all the evidence? It doesn't make sense. Um, they also admit that they refused to test the explosives or to test for explosives or, or residue of thermite. Now, this is what I'm going to go into here just real quickly, is there are national standards for an investigation. That's what all of us are asking for, an investigation that follows national standards and holds people accountable. <clears throat> this, this manual right here, just so you can see it, is what we call the, the kind of the Fire Investigation 101. This is the most basic fire investigation manual there. This is for the 2001 edition. This is what should have been referred to at least. It doesn't have to be followed exactly, but it should have been used as a guideline for the investigation. I'm just going to cover a few of the things that are in here. <clears throat> so NIST violated, and the initial investigators that did not protect the scene violated the most basic of the guidelines. And I'm going to cover five of them here. One is the NFPA 9.3.6. It covers spoilation of evidence. What Specifically what it reads is once evidence has been removed from the scene, it should be maintained and not destroyed or altered <clears throat> until the investigation is complete. The steel was melted down prior to the investigation. We know that from their own admission. This is no conspiracy theory stuff. 19.2.4, exotic accelerants. If, the, if on the scene you find melted steel or concrete, you should consider the use of exotic accelerants. And they specifically say in the manual, thermite mixtures produce exceedingly hot fires that can account for melted steel and concrete. It also says they leave residues that can be tested for visually and chemically identifiable. Again, they did not test for it. And just put it in perspective, on a routine house fire, if we suspect even the slightest use of an accelerant, we're going to test for it when there's no fatalities, when there's very little property damage. So to not do it on this, there is absolutely no excuse. I can't drive that point home enough. 
18.15 is analyzed fuel source. All available fuel sources should be considered and eliminated until one fuel can be identified as meeting all the physical damage criteria. For example, if you find if you find pulverized concrete, which we all know there was in all three buildings there was pulverized concrete, <clears throat> the only fuels that can create seeded explosions should be considered. So they shouldn't be considering fires. They shouldn't be doing that. It doesn't account for pulverized concrete. They should only be considering exotic accelerants and explosives. 19.4.8.2.6, extremism. The terrorist may include fire as but one of a variety of weapons along with explosives used in furthering his or her goal. We know they used them in 93. Why would we not test for them now? There was reports that day, multiple reports, which I'll get into in a second. So they could have put them in the basement. How do we know that unless we test for it? I mean, even if it is the terrorists that they claim they are, we need to test this. 14.3, preservation of the fire scene and physical evidence. We find the following. The cause of the fire explosion is not known until the, near the end of the investigation. The entire fire scene should be considered physical evidence and should be protected and preserved. It's just over and over. There's so many. You can go to our website, the Firefighters Trial and Truth. We have many more of these actual um, chapters that cover what they should have done that they did not do. So now by their own admission, in all three building collapses, NIST refused to test for to physically test, like Dr. Stephen Jones did, for explosives. Um, this, this is just unbelievable. And here are their excuses, and I quote, it is unlikely that 100 pounds of thermite or more could have been carried into World Trade Center 7 and placed around columns without being detected, either prior to September 11th or during that day. So again, I've been on a lot of fire scenes, and I've seen a lot of investigations, and why would we not test because something's hard to do? That's the exact reason you need to investigate it. If that was hard to do, we need to find out how they did it. And number two, NIST excuse. In addition, no blast sounds were heard on the audio tracks of the video recordings during the collapse of World Trade Center 7 or reported by witnesses. That's one of the excuses why they didn't test. Well, apparently they didn't read Chapter 18. 18 is the general definition of explosions. Although an explosion is almost always accompanied by the production of a loud noise, the noise itself is not, in big bold letters, an essential element in the definition of an explosion. The generation and violent escape of gases are the primary criteria of an explosion. So that alone says they should have tested for it. But then we also, they, the NIST has lied, and we can prove it. As soon as the new investigation happens, you're gonna, the evidence is out there for you to see right now. We have 118 first responders who reported explosions. We have the radio transmissions from FDNY members that are still recorded today that reported explosions. We have audio recordings. We have video recordings. I've personally talked to witnesses that heard them. So there's nothing short of saying they lied, and we need, they need to be held accountable. And besides that, the uh, well, they, like I said, there is no excuse for not testing for explosives. And so, at the very least, at the very best, even if you want to believe the official story, this was the most incompetent investigation of all time. And I've talked to a lot of investigators that were there, and I asked them the specific question: Why did they refuse to test? They weren't the ones who refused, but NIST did. And they said, "All we can say, you know, all they can answer is incompetence, or they tell me to shut up. They cannot give me any def- any reason that follows national standards." So, but the reality, after you know, all the research everybody here and the incredible people we're in the room with today have done, the reality is it was a criminal investigation to cover up the crime. So, just to finish, just to finish, uh, I'd like to read a quote. This is from a retired, decorated FDNY lieutenant. Anyone who knows the fire service, he, he is a stud. He worked on Ladder Company 26, Rescue Company 3, Rescue Company 1 in his career. Anyone who knows, those are amazing companies. Um, 
He's, here's his, his uh, comment. Trade Tower 7 by itself is the smoking gun. Not hit by an aircraft with only a few relatively small fires, it came down in a classic crimp and implosion going straight into its basement, something only very precise demolitions can accomplish, which takes days, if not weeks, to prepare. The 9-11 Commission didn't even mention it, and FEMA actually stated they didn't know why it collapsed and left it at that. Brothers, I know what implications. I know that the above implications are hard, almost unthinkable, but the official explanation is utter nonsense, and 343 of our murdered brothers are crying out for justice. And now to another firestorm, this one having to do with the report from the EPA's inspector general, the man or woman who basically patrols, polices the EPA. It concerns the air people were breathing at ground zero in the hours, the days, the months following the 9-11 attack. How safe was it or wasn't it? And what were people told about its safety and why? Your CNN's Mike Loku. New York Senator Hillary Clinton called the White House's actions absolutely inexcusable. This after revelations from the EPA's internal watchdog report. In the aftermath of the World Trade Center collapse, the report says, White House officials pressured the agency to assure the public that the air was safe to breathe before the agency really knew for sure. The EPA did not have the data. They had not conducted the tests, and they lacked the samples to tell workers, parents, residents, business owners, and first responders that they need not worry. But that's exactly what the EPA did. Then EPA Chief Christy Todd Whitman. But from a real health problem and health concerns, we don't have to worry. According to the report, senior officials at the EPA circulated a memo one day after the attacks specifying that all statements to the media should be cleared by the National Security Council. At some point, the report says the White House convinced the agency to, quote, add reassuring statements and delete cautionary ones. The acting EPA chief says at no time did the agency mislead the public. EPA did not change any cautionary statements in order to reassure the public. We're dismayed and saddened that people would even believe any of the allegations. Clinton is demanding new testing, new cleaning, and that someone be accountable. Residents used to say the air downtown carried the scent of unsettled souls. Two years later, more than a few questions still unsettled. Michael Oku, CNN, New York. I saw this last week. One of the producers brought it in, and I double-taked. And I had to go get online just to make sure that I was really reading. I mean, I thought it was one of these things where people make a fake site and then make it look like CNN or Fox or Associated Press. I've seen that before, where people actually make a fake URL, and it, and it but you can immediately read it until it's fake. And I read this, and I thought, this really reads like a CNN report, but... This can't be true. So I searched it. Little did I know, this news had been out for several weeks. Several weeks. It first broke in early August. Bloomberg put his press release out. And I, it was AP, Fox, CNN, and all reporting it like it's totally reasonable. And see, that's another story. Not just that they barred the first responders from the 10th anniversary, but that it's not a bigger issue. 
I mean, look at this. And it goes on to say that they are barred from it because Mayor Bloomberg, and, and also now we turned out the White House is behind this. No God is to be mentioned. 30,000 plus people just in the area, 100,000 around it. No porta potties. It, it's really bizarre. They don't want people there. They don't want the first responders there because, look at these headlines. Congressional ordered screening of 9-11 responders turns up no terrorist. That's right. They are being screened as terrorists, the first responders. 911 responders to be warned, they will be screened by FBI's terrorism watch list. Huffington Post. I mean, I'm reading New York Post, Huffington Post. Here's uh, another one here. The Health Care Act compensation won't cover 9-11 survivors with cancer. They know there's thousands of surviving men and women, firefighters, police, medics, doctors, National Guard, heroes. When, when everybody was running out, the old cliche, they ran in. And... For nine years, they blocked coverage, even though all the major universities out there did the scans of their lungs full of asbestos, the deaths, all the police dogs died in a couple of years, even people who got their feet chopped off by falling debris, you know, in the uh, recovery effort and the demolition effort, they wouldn't get treatment. So we fought. I went, did, flew to New York, my own expense, rented buildings, gave 100% to first responders, the groups that were pushing to get the compensation. When they finally got the compensation, they said, you got to go through a terror database, and now we're not going to cover most stuff. So that's why they don't want them there. They said they're going to have a fire chief, police chief, and the military just brass there. They're not allowed in the pit. They're not allowed in the main event. And why is that? Well, I know why. But here to give us their view on it uh, is uh, Joey Garofalo, New York City correctional officer and worked at Ground Zero in the first few weeks for 9-11. He's the founder and director of 911 WTC First Responders Foundation, RememberBuilding7.org. And Ted Walter started doing research uh, for many years and have been involved ever since. And he's the director of NYC CAN and Remember Building 7 campaign. They've run those ads that have gotten national attention and that our listeners have supported. And I want to thank you, the listeners, for doing that. Before we get into this year's 10th anniversary and what's happening and how Obama put out talking points saying use it to you know, take liberties, expand the war on terror, but no responders, uh, what is your view and why do you think they're barring the first responders from the event? Uh, uh, Ted, uh, you're a New Yorker. You've been you know, covering this. Why do you think this happened? Well, yeah, the, fir the first responders bring a sad story to 9-11, and the country... You know, the powers that be want to forget. They want they want people to be happy. They don't want people to look at the real effects of, of 9-11. The fact that we're in two, three, you know, uncountable numbers of wars. The fact that we've got thousands of first responders dying. That's the story that first responders bring to 9-11. That's why the powers that be don't want them there. So, and yeah, first responders are angry, especially with the cancer issue. Joey has been an outspoken voice um, against this, and it's just... It's just really unconscionable that cancer is not being covered by Zagroga. It's really unconscionable. Uh, uh, well, uh, Ted, can you give us uh, your view on these folks? Yeah, well, I've spent a lot of time with them the last few years. And, and look, uh, it's not a happy bunch of people. Um, they're suffering. They're dying. Uh, we thought last year was a little bit of a breakthrough. Uh, there was going to be some funding for them. Um, but, yeah, as we found out, because cancer is not being covered, there's a huge percentage of the first responders. Um, and, it, and it's not only, only the first responders. Last year, um, a dear friend of NYC CAN, uh, Jeanette McKinley, passed away. Uh, she uh, had a brain tumor, and she was, in, she was right across the street from the World Trade Center when it collapsed. And a huge mountain of dust flew, broke through her windows. 
she inhaled it, and she's not with us anymore. And so they know they know what they know what that dust uh, did. They know it's in that dust. They know what that dust does to people. And when you bring first responders into the story, it just brings us closer to the truth about what happened on 9/11. Now, uh, Chad, while we're getting Joey back on the line, we had some issues with that line. Um, it, he was up for a second. It sounded like he was agreeing, or, or perhaps that was you. Uh, but, but, but when you talk to these first responders, these these heroes. Uh, why do they think they're barred from the ceremony, and uh, is it hurtful? I know they're in the CNN articles and others saying they're outraged and they don't know why this is happening, but how could Mayor Bloomberg just calmly say, yeah, you're not welcome? Again, because they bring a story They bring a story of, of pain, and, and they're still angry. You know, uh, the, first, uh, the, the family members, a, a lot of family members are very angry, are still looking for the truth. Um, but a lot of family members uh, are are going to be at the ceremony, and and unfortunately have um, you know have, have are, are willing to sort of support the official narrative that's been going on um, because it's a really painful, I mean, unspeakably painful topic for them as well. But the first responders are much are, are much less willing, and they've got so much to be angry about because they're still not getting the support that they that they need ten years later, um, and so. Yeah, if they were there, they would they would be they would be outspoken. They wouldn't be contributing to the dynamic that New York City, Mike Bloomberg, the president, et cetera, are trying to create. Um, they just don't fit into that narrative that we're supposed to be all swallowing on the 10th anniversary. Did you see two days ago when the White House talking points that were supposed to be secret went out to state government? federal government and foreign governments about the narrative of al-Qaeda is a threat, we've got to have more wars, got to take your rights, we're going to keep you safe. Uh, I mean, they, they want to use the heroes and the images of the people on the pile, but they don't want people to see them in their wheelchairs and coughing up blood like I have. Exactly, exactly. It's a very sad story. But you know who's telling the real story? Uh, you look you look across the pond in Europe, there, there are a number of documentaries coming out this weekend. One is coming out on M6. Uh, that's the basically the second biggest channel in France, and it's telling the story of the first responders and their suffering, and it's telling the story of the family members and their suffering as well, and the fact that they haven't had a real investigation into the murder of their loved ones. And so, like media in other parts of the world are are awake and they're waking up, and they're telling the stories that 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 need to be told, the real stories, and that's because people in Europe are waking up. This weekend, we are going to have a breakthrough. We have major documentaries in France, Germany, and Italy coming out about the Remember Building 7 campaign. They're going to be seen by at least 10 million Europeans. And Europeans, they're not, they're not prone to deceiving themselves as quickly as much of the people in our country because they've been through a lot of stuff over the last uh, 100 years or so. So when they see Building 7 collapse, they're going to know that's a controlled demolition. You don't have to... You know, talk to a scientist to figure that out. And Europeans are going to see it. They're going to say, what the hell? This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 18th day of July 2010. And now for the real news. In our top story this week, a series of comments from prominent political operatives and media personalities praising the political utility of large-scale terror attacks are drawing widespread condemnation. In one of the latest examples, former Clinton official and Obama supporter Rob Shapiro was quoted in the Financial Times this week, seemingly hoping for a new spectacular terror event to revive the public's waning belief in the Obama administration. 
The bottom line here is that Americans don't believe in President Obama's leadership, he was quoted as saying. He has to find some way between now and November of demonstrating that he is a leader who can command confidence and, short of a 9-11 event or an Oklahoma City bombing, I can't think of how he could do that. The comment, which was swiftly and roundly condemned by political commentators, came as no surprise to those who have noted similar rhetoric from those on both the left and the right who realize that the current political paradigm is constructed on the myth of a pervasive, monolithic, and ruthless terrorist conspiracy. In 2005, a confidential GOP memo was leaked stressing the need for a devastating terror attack to validate the war on terror and unite the country in shock and sorrow. These exact sentiments were echoed in 2007 by Dennis Milligan, who expressed the need for another 9-11 to prove war on terror naysayers wrong in his first interview as Arkansas Republican Party chairman. The idea surfaced again later in 2007 when columnist Stu Baikowski wrote an op-ed in the Philadelphia Daily News entitled, To Save America, We Need Another 9-11. Baikowski defended his remarks on Fox News and was aided in that defense by John Gibson. 9-11 united the country, and it remained united, and we were all on the same team for at least a year or two. Stu, but do you mean to say that we are going to be attacked again, we will be united again, that's a sort of inevitability to that, or that in order to achieve this unity, we actually need to suffer? Uh, John, I didn't actually call for an attack on the United States. Uh, I can see where people read it that way, but I didn't actually say it. However, another attack on the United States is inevitable. I believe that, don't you? Yes, I do, actually, and I okay. think it's going to take a lot of dead people to wake America up. Now, since Bill Clinton himself came out recently suggesting that opponents of the Obama administration were likely to perpetrate another OKC-style terror event, it has been the Democrats who have been arguing that another terrorist attack would be good for the country. This follows comments earlier this week by CNN's Rick Sanchez calling this week's bombing in Uganda that left 74 people dead helpful to those attempting to reduce global geopolitics to a simplistic paradigm of the U.S. military versus a global terror jihad. Our latest tally of the number who died, 74. 74 innocent people are dead. Joining, uh, joining me now is Gary Bernstein. He's a former CIA officer. But you know what's interesting about this? In a strange way, the event is helpful to the cause of those of us who know uh, how sadistic these fundamental radical Islamic terrorists are. And if it helps get the message out there that these are not the good guys, then so be it. Unsurprisingly, not mentioned by those who express a desire for spectacular bloodshed to further their political objectives are those facts that would tend to complicate the war on terror narrative. Earlier this week, a terrorist attack in Iran left 28 people dead and 167 injured after a suicide bombing at a mosque in the southeastern city of Zahedan. Responsibility for the bombing has been claimed by Jundula, a Sunni terrorist organization based in Balochistan. The bombing is apparently in response to the capture and execution of their leader, Abdulmalek Rigi, by Iran earlier this year. Before his execution, Rigi confessed to American military support for the Jundula organization. Abul Malik Rigi says he met the U.S. agents in Pakistan who promised support for carrying out terrorist attacks in Iran. 
اینا گفته بودن ما در اونجا یک پایگاهی داریم پایگاه مناس The Americans promised to give us aid they said they cooperate with us and give me military equipment arms and machine guns they told me that in Kyrgyzstan they have a base called Manas near Bishkek and that in a place like this some high ranking American person could come and we could reach an agreement on making personal contacts The Americans said Iran was going its own way, and they said their problem at the present is Iran. Not Al-Qaeda, not the Taliban, their main problem is Iran. One of the CIA officers said that it was too difficult for them to attack Iran militarily, but they plan to give aid and support to all anti-Iranian groups that have the capability to wage war and create difficulty for the Islamic State. Although ABC News and The New Yorker have both previously reported on the covert CIA support for this terrorist organization, None of the American terror pundits are noting this aspect of the story. In other news this week, the finding that allowed the National Institute of Standards and Technology to withhold data from its World Trade Center 7 collapse simulation has finally been released via whistleblowing site Cryptome.org. The finding was made on July 9, 2009, and reads in part, quote, The disclosure of the information in connection with NIST's investigation of the technical causes of the collapse of the World Trade Center Towers and World Trade Center Building 7 on September 11, 2001, might jeopardize public safety. Therefore, NIST shall not release the information. End quote. Although the finding was made last year, the actual finding itself was not available to those who had requested the information, leading many to suspect that it would contain details of exactly how or why the data from NIST's WTC7 collapse simulation would jeopardize public safety, but no such explanation is to be found. Analysts note the finding is especially odd given that NIST itself has claimed that the collapse of WTC7 was an extraordinary event unprecedented in history and that they arrived at that conclusion using the computer model whose input and result data they have now classified in the name of public safety. But I have always felt, and right from the very beginning, that 9-11 was an inside job. As a matter of fact, I was one of the first people to come right out and publicly say it after... Uh, after uh, Ari Fleischer told the world, be careful what you say and be careful who you say it to. At that point, I knew that what happened at 9-11 in those buildings and what was going on on government level, because of my living inside of the belly of the beast all my life, I knew how the beast components think. I know how wretched and terrible and how dirty these people can be. I have seen, while I was institutionalized, I have seen guards brutally beat inmates to death and say, turn around and say that the next nigger that says anything gets killed on the spot. And then they say they killed, they report to the family that they killed themselves. Or that they'd been strung up with sheets and committed suicide when in fact they had been beaten unconscious and then a sheet put around their neck and tied up. And there was every institution I was ever in, avowed members of the Ku Klux Klans, the John Birchers, neo-Nazi, uh, fascist, and racist to the core. So I spent my whole life in prisons fighting and almost being killed on seven major occasions fighting fascist racist. And I have been an anti-authoritarian 
for many, many years, and I've been a fighter for many years. Uh, I became brutalized to such a degree that at one point I said I will never be brutalized again. To me, the, ad, the axiom, enough is enough, became my model, and I would not tolerate. So for me, I seen things that are different. I would never believe. So when I saw this happen, I gave an interview on uh, WBAI on the Chiokas and Ghost Horse show, and I basically stated right from the onset. I says, look, as far as I'm concerned, 9-11 was an inside job. And I says, uh, I says, I believe and I know that those Twin Towers were laced with asbestos. And I know that there was a whole uh, uh, a series of lawsuits going on, insurance uh, bickering back and forth about who was going to settle or how they were going to bring those towers down for years that had been known and reported that they were laced with asbestos and that those towers had to come down because they, 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 they were contaminating too many people that worked in those buildings. And then over the years, they were also losing a lot of clientele. People were moving out. So it, wasn't, it was becoming a major two white elephants is what happened. And so I said on the show, I said, well, look, I says, if I, I says, I, everyone knows that those Twin Towers were nicknamed David and Nelson Rockefeller. And I said that that was their nicknames. And the Rockefellers had basically financed man, the building of the Twin Towers, along with the Port Authority, which is nothing but a forefront organization for the Rockefeller family. And my gut-level feeling says, especially when I heard that there had been a cobble of insurance companies who had reaped billions of dollars, although at that time it was only reported as millions of dollars, in put option trades. And I said, you know, well, it's unbelievable that they actually had the audacity to bet on the blood that was let that day of 3,000 people. And I said to myself, well, this is easy enough. I said, well... I mean, the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, the FBI, the Internal Revenue Service, uh, said the national security agencies, uh, some agency, the CIA, somebody is going to have to domestically investigate that. And somebody is going to find out, follow the money trail, and you're going to find out who killed who. Who was behind 9-11? I did not believe for one second that an asset by the name of Tom O.S.S., Men, Tom Osman, which is the other name for Osama bin Laden, and OSS was the beginning of the CIA, founded by the Dulles brothers in the 1940s or the 1960s. And so you got Tim Osman, Osman, saying that this guy from Afghanistan had plotted and planned with 19 Saudis and hit those towers and killed 3,000 people. And I never believed it for a second. I never believed that those were actual airlines that went down, that hit those towers. I believed that they were drone-controlled from the very beginning. I believed that they were mounted with missiles and that those buildings were hit with missiles. 
But I also believed, I also believed, and still believed, that if you follow the money far enough, that I believed right from the very beginning that the money would lead back to the Rockefellers and the Rothschild financial empires. And in my research, I have done that. I have found that. While I was looking, I started scanning the net, and it was just only so many years ago that I've really been able to go through the computers and learn how to use those nets out of Google and do searching. And But I've been searching for years and years and uh, been going and checking out why hasn't there been a major investigation uh, of Congress or the investigatory bodies, the intelligence bodies, that would be able to come out and say that the money trail leads, the, of those who benefited billions of dollars from 9-11, leads to these people here. Um, I found out in my reading, I came across an article that talked about a guy by the name of Bergman, Bill Bergman, who worked with the Chicago Board of Exchange. Chicago Board of Exchange in, in Chicago. And he was investigating the corporations that benefited or that these put options were traded on. And then I found out that there was a list of 38 corporations that had benefited or that had traded prior to 9-11. And I'm not just talking about immediately prior to 9-11, but I'm talking about months in advance. Billions of dollars had been traded. So my first investigation, I found out, I was reading an article by E.R. Mulgrew in the Vancouver Sun. And he was the first one that I saw, and he talks about a list of 38 corporations that the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission refused to release. And I wondered why this guy, Bill Bergman, who had the same list, who started tracking on this, Bill Bergman was fired from his job by the New York Federal Reserve. And I asked myself, well, why would they fire this guy for investigating? I found out that the NSA, who were originally investigating 100 U.S. citizens around 9-11, put off stock tradings, as well as non-citizens, as well as citizens from Canada and Japan and Germany. But they stopped their investigation because they says, well, uh, you know, we're not actually technically by law, we're not supposed to investigate Americans and we might get sued. When did any intelligence agency ever worried about getting sued before? When? That's the first I ever heard. And I said, you know, somebody, my instinctive logic told me somebody is covering up. And for in order to have these institutions to cover up these crimes of treason and mass murder, in order for them to do that, they would have to be somebody that controlled the U.S. government and governments of the world and utilize those governments as puppets for their financial empires. We would have to go right to the tip, right to the peak of the financial empires of the world. 
and the two financial empires of the world that I know of is the Rothschild and the Rockefeller financial empires. So, after reading Eon Mulgrew's article, he lists a, a bunch of the corporations that the Canadian SEC accidentally released. So they were trying to put a lid on that. They were trying to call it back. And they were saying it was against the law and you could get charged for having that list. Well, the next thing you know, I, at that point, I didn't even know how to download off the Internet this article. So I hand-wrote it. I hand-wrote every corporation he had there. And then I came up with this list. Because the next day, Ian Mulgrew's article was taken off the Internet, was taken off the, the archives. Of course, somehow it's all gotten back on. But the list of the 38 corporations that billions of dollars were traded on in put option stock goes as follows. We start out with uh, American Corp, American Express, American International Group, AIG. Bear that one in mind. AXA-SA, Bank of America, Bank of New York, Bank One Corp, Bear Stearns, bear that one in mind. Boeing, Carnival, Chubb, Cigna, Citigroup, bear that. Can Financial, Continental Air, L3 Communications, Lehman Brothers, bear that. Lowheed Martin, Lone Star Technologies, Tech LTV Corp, Delta Air, General Motors, Hercules, bear that. Marsh and McLellan, definitely bear that one, with AIG. MetLife, Morgan Stanley, Northwest, Progressive Corp, Raytheon, bear that one. Royal Caribbean, Royal Sun, Alliance, Southwest Airlines, United Airlines, U.S. Airways, Vornado, W.R. Grace, XL Capital, Merrill Lynch, and the Hartford Company. Now, after looking at that, um, I thought to myself, you know, I started going back to my thing. I said, well, why did they, again, why did they fire this Bill Bergman? I was troubled by that. Who is suppressing? And I thought to myself, you know, when they fired him, it was the Federal Reserve that fired them. And I said, you know what, by this time I'm, I'm able to Google, right? <laughs> I'm able to do some search. On the computer, I'm becoming somewhat savvy. So I, I, I Google in who owns the Federal Reserve. And all of a sudden, I get this real nice chart. And so I know how to print them off. I go right to the printer and I look at it. Well, lo and behold, I see it's the Rockefeller and the Bank of England and the, and, and, and the Rothschild Empire, the Rothschild and the Bank of England and the Rockefeller Empire. And then as I look at this slick graphic in this chart of these two families and I see all of their major corporate holdings, guess what? Every one of these on the corporate 38 list 
shows all of these two people, these two families, their corporations have just made billions of dollars of put option stocks. They own them. And I thought, well, thank some force unseen. Whatever. Or just think logical thinking. Because the logical conclusion was, my suspicion was, is that the Rockefellers and Rothschilds were behind 9-11. Well, then there's a whole another cast of characters. of tremendous proportions and makes Watergate look small. There's a strange lack of interest of people both on the left and on the right. Nobody seems to want to uncover the truth and just follow leads wherever they may go, because I think that goes to a lot of really damaging places. Maybe we shouldn't have questioned whether or not President Nixon had any involvement in Watergate. Maybe we should have just accepted that story. Maybe we should have accepted the story that President Clinton had no involvement, had never had sex with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. So just because it's the official story of record does not mean that we should not delve further and to see if really that is the actual story. Yes, they lied. They all lied. Whether consciously or unconsciously, it happened. Now we need to look into why they lied and what were the results of those wars. We can't have these wars reorganize our way of life based on a false understanding of what 9-11 was. We have to go beyond the myth and get to the truth. We have to know. We have to. 9-11 was the biggest don't ask, don't tell. And if it wasn't for the families, we wouldn't have anything. And that's very frightening. We had to take this tragedy um, and do the best we could with our lives and with our country um, to try and make <sighs> the people that are supposed to protect us do the right thing. What I really wanted to happen here is for my children to feel safe. I could have cared less who was in office. I wanted the truth and I wanted what was wrong to be fixed. What we're left with after our journey is no answers, no accountability, and I've wasted four years of my life trying my damnedest, along with the other family members, to make sure this never happens again. Let me just say something real quickly about my son. On the wall in his room, he, it said, knowledge is power. I am only doing this for one reason and one reason only, to carry on his legacy. I'm so pissed off at the American people. I'm so pissed off at this government because of this cover-up. John Gerard Coughlin, Timothy J. Coughlin, Anne Marie Kramer, Christopher Seaton Kramer, 
and my big brother, Wade, Brian, Green. We miss you, we love you, and you are always in our hearts. For this week's trading, Dow lost 3.81 points, 3% of its overall value. NASDAQ was almost 93, that's more than a 4% drop for the week. We'll take a break here.